Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 215 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Patricia 2.0, an interview with Patricia Kosselich. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Matt, we named this episode Patricia 2.0 because Patricia shared with us the importance of a transformation or the beautiful elements of a Lyme journey and how you can discover or rediscover the important superpowers that each one of us has at the end of a Lyme disease journey. Rich, Patricia gave us so much on this podcast interview. She gave us a comprehensive list of detox protocols that helped her in her journey that our listeners can use to model. She also talked to us about ozone and how ozone is not only used in blood, but it can be used vaginally, anally, through the nose and through the ears as well. She talked to us about nervous system retraining and how it helped her be more resilient down the road. She also talked to us about essential oils, specifically food grade essential oils, and how working with Dr. Ducharme, she was able to use that as a kill protocol for Lyme and co-infections. Lastly, she talked to us about identity and how when she got sick, she felt she lost everything connected to her identity and she had to rebuild that and become a better version of herself. So Matt, but the identity piece was really one where she didn't have to rebuild her identity. She actually had to rediscover her identity because she was somebody who had a passion for the not-for-profit world and she had a passion for theater. And after she got through her Lyme disease journey or she got to the later stages of her Lyme disease journey, she rediscovered the superpowers that she thought she had lost during the course of this Lyme disease journey. So Matt, without further ado, I'm really excited to introduce Patricia 2.0 to the Tick Bootcamp community. Hey, Patricia, welcome to the Tick Bootcamp podcast. Hey, it's so great to see you, Matt and Rich. Thanks for having me. Well, we're really excited. You've been on our radar for a long time. So it's uh, finally time that the three of us have come together to uh, share your journey with the folks in the Lyme disease community. So Patricia, why don't you first uh, share with us uh, where you're calling in from? I'm in Huntington Beach, California. A Cali another California gal with Lyme disease. It's kind of a surprise because we've been told on many occasions that there's no Lyme disease in California. Ooh, you and me both a bunch of times, but alas, there are plenty of people with Lyme disease in California. All right. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to hear you're not an outlier, but it is, uh, it is interesting that the folks on the West Coast think that Lyme disease is an East Coast disease. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of thoughts on that. <laughs> all right. Well, and we're going to let you unload all of that. I want, to, I want you to get all of that off your chest. But before we do that, I know I'm setting you up a little bit to uh, get excited. Share with us um, what your childhood was like and what it was like to grow up uh, where you grew up. Well, the short version <laughs> is I loved to sing and dance. I was a theater kid. I did musical theater. I read a lot. I liked, I would like to read and walk at the same time in elementary school. It's a wonder I didn't walk into any polls and I was kind of nerdy, definitely inquisitive in a sort of quirky eccentric way, although that hasn't exactly changed. And by the time I was in high school, I was intensely type A. So I was very driven, took a lot of honors and AP courses, which it feels weird to talk about because it's just, it feels weird to talk about things like that from the past, but it is important in a sense that I was an extremely organized person. I had a lot of goals. I was competent at accomplishing them and then it all fell apart and I felt like I was losing my memory. Maybe that's jumping ahead a little bit, but no, it's not. I mean, we do have to set a context. So just, just so that you don't feel, uh, 
like you're bragging about you, yourself a little too much. I mean, you were a geek, right? You were a geeky kid. Yeah. You were doing the things that geeky kids do, and you were you were you were passionate about the arts. Uh, you were uh, you were also uh, an avid reader, and you were somebody who was preparing yourself for your future. So, mm-hmm. talk about what you were doing all that work for. Meaning, what were you planning to do with your adult life while you were doing all this work? Uh, pursuing the arts, being a little quirky, studying hard, taking AP courses. Where was all this leading you? I was torn in a couple directions. I've always been an extremely multi-passionate, idea-driven person. So there was one version of myself that I saw headed toward executive leadership in nonprofits. And I wanted, my dream in high school was to be the CEO of GSUSA or Girl Scouts at the national level. And then my other dream was to be on Broadway, <laughs> very different. So I actually started college as a classical voice major, which is another journey in and of itself. And the other thing was, even though I was pretty nerdy, I did exercise quite a bit, which is also important in that I was an over-exerciser. I was sometimes doing a few hours a day. And so again, later when fatigue hit, that was a pretty big shock. Okay. So you, you had this passion to be active in the not-for-profit world. You had this passion to move to the East Coast so you can move <laughs> to the line belt and, of course, also pursue your theatrical um, talents. Uh, and, then, and then you had some other things going on where, uh, we, where you were also athletic and you were somebody who was passionate about being fit. So you had a lot of sort of diverse things going on and you're, you're pursuing all of these different diverse passions and preparing yourself uh, by building this academic and intellectual foundation to, to save the world, both through the not-for-profit and, and through, uh, through the arts, and then you start to get sick, right? So talk to us about when you first started to, you know, to get sick. Um, was, this, um, was this during your childhood or were you later on in life when you started to feel your symptoms? So by 11th grade, it was obvious that something was wrong. And if we backtrack even more, it looks like in ninth and 10th grade, something was wrong. And then we backtrack even more now that I know more about Lyme disease. And I was probably sick in elementary school. It's so hard to say. I had starting in first grade, I remember having headaches a lot in school and struggling to learn to read and feeling really overwhelmed. And I think I was light sensitive then. So now I wear the glasses because of Erlen syndrome, but I wasn't diagnosed with that until halfway through college. So there were definitely things that started then I was sick a lot in elementary school. I had stomach aches a lot, which is funny because I don't have them anymore. Uh, Even when I was diagnosed with with leaky gut, I didn't have stomach aches at all ever. So it's interesting how I think sometimes we even lose feeling in parts of our bodies. So um, one of the observations I have to make just because it's just a softball is it's really interesting that the geeky kid looks so cool now that she gets to wear sunglasses all the time. (laughs) I can still be a nerd on the inside. All right. So um, one of the things that we've we've talked about with many of our podcast guests is, and this is sort of this chicken and egg scenario, where we have a lot of people who were, you know, sickly children, who later find themselves diagnosed with Lyme disease. And I just wanted to sort of get your thoughts on this one issue. Do you think perhaps you were immunocompromised genetically as a young person, and then came came uh, in contact with Lyme and 
was more likely to become chronically ill? Or do you think perhaps you contracted Lyme very early on? And of course, it just progressed as time went on. Uh, and as you had immune disrupting events ultimately became chronic. It's possible. Okay. I don't think it's genetic. I don't think I was genetically immunocompromised. That's an interesting question. I do have MTHFR and that's about the only thing that I could think of because we've looked at my genes and there's, there's not a whole lot there that would suggest, although what was interesting is when we looked at my genes, it did say I had a proclivity toward if I got Lyme, I might get sick and stay sick. I was more susceptible. I don't know how they measured that, but that was very interesting. So I very likely could have contracted it young. I mean, even though there is Lyme in California, and I think it's really important to realize that Lyme has been detected in ticks in all 50 states. It's also very possible I did contract it in the Lyme belt because my dad is from Long Island. Hey, you're neck of the woods. So my biological father is from Long Island. And so I grew up visiting there every summer and playing in the trees with my cousins. So easily, easily could have gotten it there at a very young age. And then maybe my immune system was strong enough that it didn't totally ravage everything and take over until much later when I was more stressed and there were other events in my life. So, well, Patricia, let's pause there for a second and, and let's deconstruct that a little bit. Uh, so your dad is from Long Island, which is the Lyme Belt, right? And we, quite frankly, we, I can tell you, I'm probably around your dad's age, that I was bitten by ticks during the entirety of my childhood growing up on Long Island. And one of the questions that I think we have to ask when we are parenting children, having grown up in the Lyme Belt, is whether or not we pass the Lyme disease on to our children um, through uh, sexual transmission, meaning there is the possibility that your dad, through his uh, through his sperm, could have passed the um, you know the Lyme bacteria onto your mom, and you could have contracted it congenitally. It's very possible, and we'll never know. My mom actually also tested positive for multiple tick-borne illnesses. So did we both contract We also camped and hiked a lot when I was in, when I was a teenager. So it's possible we both contracted it then, or maybe I was born with it and maybe she got it, or maybe she got it from my dad. We'll never know for sure. So let's talk about your your educational background, right? You, you're a geeky kid. Uh, you took a lot of AP courses. You were somebody who had a very good educational experience. I think anyone who's listening to this podcast can tell you're very bright. You're really articulate. So tell us what first you learned about ticks and tick diseases during your educational experience. And I just want you to focus on your traditional education. I'll talk to you about your parents and other types of education later, but Focus, focus first on your, on your traditional education. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> Literally so, nothing. <laughs> so you took health courses and science courses and uh, obviously performed at a very high level educationally. And you don't recall receiving any information about how to keep yourself safe from these vectors and the diseases they can pass on to you. No. All right, now, you did share with us, Patricia, that you had a passion for scouting. You were a Girl Scout. In fact, it was such an important part of your life that you thought that might be a career path for you. And part of scouting, of course, is camping and learning about 
the outdoors and you and your mom were outdoorsy people. So tell me what you learned about ticks and tick diseases from either your camping experiences or from Girl Scouts. So we did learn about vector-borne illnesses being a cause for concern on camping trips in other states, <laughs> but we never learned about cause for concern in California. And the only places I went camping and hiking were California. And then I also went to Oregon when we stayed in tree houses and did a bunch up there. And it's very possible I could have gotten something on that trip. But again, we'll never know for sure. I did though learn a little bit more. So I actually did a short-term cultural exchange and backpacking trip in Costa Rica through Girl Scouts when I was in high school. And I had a, I did a couple other cross-cultural exchanges internationally, uh, Thailand and Australia, and also did something in Japan later. So I, I did a few things, but for those that were required immunizations, of course, again, no mention of Lyme or tick-borne illness, but mention of other vector-borne illnesses, but I didn't really, it's terrible. I was the kind of person who didn't even wear repellent because I didn't know that it mattered. I, if I had 30 bug bites on one arm, I didn't care. I was a little bit of a tomboy and that kind of pain didn't bother me. And I went, it's fine. 30 bug bites, no big deal. It's no, whatever. Come at me, bite me. I dare you. Which of course now I realized was foolish and ignorant, but I didn't know. I didn't realize that other than the temporary discomfort, I didn't realize there was risk of long-term so the Gigi Tomboy uh, gets some education about vector-borne diseases. Now, you said that was not tick-borne diseases, right? So I guess it was mosquitoes and other, other vectors, but ticks were not included. And despite receiving information about how you can protect yourself from, uh, from these diseases, uh, you didn't either take it seriously enough or wasn't emphasized enough to you to believe that it was an important uh, step to take to protect yourself from these vectors so that you wouldn't get sick. Exactly. I had no idea how important it was. And quite frankly, I didn't realize that I was putting myself at risk because I didn't think anything bad was going to happen. Well, so let's, let's stay with that for a second, Patricia, because you're a really smart, you're a really smart young woman and, I, and I'm sure you were a really smart child, right? So if your teachers and or trainers and or coaches were emphasizing the importance of doing this to keep yourself healthy, you would have done it. I mean, you were the kind of you were the kind of geeky kid that was over exercising. I mean, you health was a an important part of your life. Um, you clearly were a rule follower, despite having that little side part of you that was offbeat. Uh, and you certainly wouldn't have done something to put yourself at risk, right? So if it was if you were taught properly about the risks of uh, vector-borne diseases, you would have taken steps to protect yourself, and you would have just said, "Oh, I got thirty bites on my arm. That's okay." You're so perceptive, Rich. You nailed it. And I was extremely hardcore about preventative health. I was eating kale before it was cool. Back when kale was all the rage, it was like, I was a little ahead of the curve on the kale. <laughs> and if you were on the sunglasses back then, you would have really been cool. Oh yeah. <laughs> Super cool. <laughs> yeah. Actually my family, my dad refused to take me to the grocery store with him because I would take too long reading all the food labels and it just annoyed everyone else in the family. So it was really shocking when I was the one that became so sick because I was so health conscious. 
Now, you said your dad was a Long Islander, and I'm assuming he was aware of ticks. I'm assuming he was bitten by ticks because all of us who grew up here have been bitten many, many times. What did your dad share with you about ticks and tick diseases when he was bringing you back to the Lyme Belt? Not a lot. Actually, my grandmother is the one that mentioned Lyme at one point. She said, oh, there have been some really, I read in the paper, there are some really bad cases of Lyme, so be careful. But then that was, and I remember feeling that sense of childhood anxiety of, oh, there's this foreboding monster that I can't really see. And that was about it. I think I even had one moment where I felt a little paranoid that maybe I was bit by something and went, wait, maybe I was, they went, nah, nah, you're fine. And that was really the extent of it. Well, let's, let's stay with that for a second, because I find that really interesting, right? Um, one of the things I know, and we're going to talk about this in, in when we get to Patricia 2.0, but uh, one of the things that I know you now do is you listen to your body, right? You listen to the signals that are coming to you and that emotions are signals that our body is sending to us about something we should be paying attention to, to keep ourselves safe. Do you think you were given a signal back when you were, when you were in the East Coast and did you possibly not pay close enough attention to that to that signal uh, at the time that's very possible and it's also something that's interesting that Lyme has really helped me learn is to not allow myself to be gaslit and so something that is very normal not okay but normal nonetheless is that a lot of times a child might say, oh, this is happening to me. This hurts. I feel this way. And they're told, no, it's fine. Tough it up. Don't be a crybaby. Don't be a little girl. Be a man. You know, all of these really toxic things that we say. And so I definitely had a lot of that in my life at that time. And that was part of how I learned to suppress everything and to just tough it out. So that's that's an interesting observation, Patricia. We, we've had we've had some other uh, folks on this podcast talk about, you know, the foundations of gaslighting and how, you know, you're being told to sort of tough it out or suck it up or stop being a whatever. Uh, and that sort of builds this foundation, which puts us in a position where we can be medically gaslit later because we're we're told that we shouldn't be trusting the signals that we're receiving. So. Do you think perhaps that uh, that foundation for medical gaslighting that we'll talk about later was set for you culturally by a family who wanted you to sort of suck it up and not uh, not be whining? There was definitely an emphasis on not whining and pulling yourself up by the bootstraps. Okay, so just let's 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 complete this part of our conversation with with giving me some information about um, about what you learned from your grandmother about Lyme disease and what she was recommending that you do, because it, it sounds like she was trying to alert you to a, to a risk, but I don't know if she was giving you any tools so that you could protect yourself from that risk. So were you getting anything other than the sort of, you know, the, there's a boogeyman out there that you have to be afraid of and you should be aware of it, or was there something more that she was telling you to do so that you can keep yourself safe? There wasn't much more to it, at least that I remember. And I also want to go back and say, cause it, something about sharing maybe the gaslighting, for example, is I don't want it to sound like there's any resentment. And also my family is lovely. There are so many lovely people. And I just want to be very mindful of that. You know, it's acknowledging the things that maybe weren't so constructive or helpful, but then also all of the beautiful things that uh, I get but, from that but, environment. 
Patricia, I mean, I can tell you as, as the father of four daughters, I consider myself a loving father and I certainly did my best, but there were probably times in a loving way, I was probably encouraging my daughters not to be whiny or not to, you know, not to uh, focus on something that at the time I didn't think was healthy for them to focus on. And I think when you're, you're a parent trying to help your children get past some of the things that they may be focusing on in a way that we don't think they should be, uh, we, may be, we may be unintentionally and lovingly putting our children in a position where a foundation for gaslighting is being established. And we're not doing that on purpose. So I, I, think, that, I think that's a pretty common phenomenon. Thank you for saying that. So let's, let's, focus on, let's focus on how your health was beginning to be problematic more than just in your early childhood, but when you now get into junior high, I don't know if you call it middle school or junior high in, in, uh, in California, and then ultimately into your high school years. Can you repeat the question? And we went yes. to I, I, I want to, we spent a lot of time now focusing on your early childhood and what that early childhood was like. And I want you to talk to us about how your health was beginning to decline or how new symptoms were developing as you moved into the middle school and high school a portion of your of your educational experience. Hmm. It's interesting because no one asks about that. So middle school, I definitely started. This is very normal, but puberty was rough. It was a hard time. <laughs> how much of that was Lyme related, maybe with my hormones, and how much of that was typical? It's hard to know, but there was definitely stuff going on with my hormones. It was not a good time. I was later diagnosed with PCOS by the way. So who knows when that started. And I started to experience ups and downs. And I don't really mean being super moody or emotional, like, Oh, teenage girl moody. It wasn't really that, but my performance was up and down. My teacher actually mentioned it in eighth grade. She went, how is it that you're the example one day and then really not okay the next day. And it wasn't acting out. That was never my thing, but maybe I couldn't concentrate or couldn't turn my work in. And then again, the next day it would be, she'd be saying, Oh, we're going to share this whole, your essay with the class. Right. So it was a very up and down thing. And there were other things going on in my life. So around that time, in eighth grade, my father, my biological father, I have a stepdad too, so it gets a little confusing, but my biological father was going through some issues with alcoholism. And then he ended up passing away. Well, he lost custody of me in ninth grade. And then he passed away very shortly after I turned 17. So all of this was happening at the same time that my symptoms were dramatically progressing, which dramatically complicated my diagnosis and my experience in having talked to many, many, many Lyme patients, maybe not quite as many as you yet, but quite a few for the interview process for the great imitator. You learn that whatever it is that's going on, whether they were a type A student, a new mom, someone close to them died, whatever it was, it's, oh, you're stressed. That's why you're fine. And in that case, it was, oh, you're grieving your dad. That's why you feel sick and you need to see a counselor. And I knew that wasn't the problem. So that did not help. <laughs> and I'm going to, I'm going to 
ask you to pause another second and ask you whether or not you ever thought that perhaps your dad was suffering from Lyme disease and that his alcohol addiction was a method of self-medicating from some of the mental health challenges that are typical of people who are suffering from Lyme. He was definitely self-medicating something. And it's tough because I'll never have an adult relationship with him to be able to ask him some of the questions that would have been nice to be able to ask him. So let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about how your family's now working with you to deal with the medical issues that had presented during your early childhood and now in middle school, how these, these symptoms are beginning to develop. Are you, are you seeing doctors? And if so, what type of doctors are you seeing? I started seeing a couple doctors in eighth grade because I started having knee problems when I was doing track and that was chalked up to growth spurts. It's really common for girls that age who do sports to have knee problems after growth spurts. So that was what started. And then in ninth grade, the knee problems became dramatically worse to the point that I was struggling to walk and it's really funny, actually. I mean, it's not funny, but I was always a dancer and theater kid, right? And I thought, well, I want to be, I want to be cool and do sports too. <laughs> Even though I was never good with any sport that involves hand-eye coordination and isn't an REI kind of sport, like kayaking or biking or climbing, you know, those are the things I can kind of pull off, but no, anything with a net or a hoop, hard, hard fail. So I thought it would be cool to learn basketball and that really, really did me in with the knee injury. Uh, and then that was when I, I mean, I started, I was really tired. I was really overwhelmed. I had headaches a lot, but I was also pushing myself way too hard because I was doing musical theater and basketball and dance and going to the gym very consistently and taking all of the honors classes available to freshmen. So it was not, a healthy lifestyle. Uh, so I sort of learned my lesson and scaled back a little bit in 10th grade, but then even then more issues started presenting. And then by 11th grade was when it all blew up and I had headaches 24 seven, literally, literally 24 seven every day, all day. And started experiencing a lot of fatigue and burnout and it hurt just to walk, like not just my knees, the knee injury had sort of stabilized a little by that time, but my legs felt like lead. Like it, they felt so heavy that going upstairs or just walking from class to class, it felt like dragging wooden or lead blocks around and everything took so much effort. And I was never an unmotivated person. And that was something that was really frustrating was that people sometimes find out that you're tired like that and go, oh, it must be X, Y, or Z mental health issue. And I was going, okay, I, that's valid. And I also know in my bones that that's not what I'm experiencing. And there's a physical block that's preventing me from doing all the things that I want to do and dream to do <laughs> not to segue too conveniently into your whole hero's journey structure, which I think is so cool that you do. So Patricia, let's, let's focus on, on this period in a little more detail. 
Because it sounds to me that you had, like so many of our past guests, an immune-disrupting event. You, you lost your dad. And from that point forward, it looks like your health was on the steep decline. And part of what you're describing to us is that you were sort of pouring yourself into all of these many diverse interests that you had, and you were living an even more stressful life, which would, of course, be even more immune-disrupting. And, and as you became more stressed, you became sicker and more stressed and sicker, but it all looks like it was triggered with your dad passing, and that seems to have been the major disrupting event. So talk, talk to us about that. So I'm going to back up a little bit. Interesting timing. Actually, the day that I was getting blood tests for whatever mystery ailment I had, when I got home from the blood tests was when I got the call that my father passed. So that meant that I had to have been experiencing symptoms for months and months in order, because as a teenager, I wasn't going to go to the doctor for fun. <laughs> you know, I had to have reached a point where I said, something's wrong. We need some help. So it had been building and building up until that moment. And, but there was a lot of chronic stress prior to that. And that's actually something when you asked earlier about potential genetic proclivities, while I may not have had a genetic issue, it was an issue of being chronically stressed. And then also through perfectionistic tendencies, which we could psychoanalyze that, but maybe not today <laughs> we'll pass on that. But it, you know, like that, add, you know, there was, there were compounding factors that made me a very, very stressed out young person. So Patricia, I love having smart people on the podcast. So I'm going to challenge you with something else. We, we, we started to sort of broach this genetic piece and give me your thoughts about genetics versus epigenetics and the, the turning on and off of genes when you're in a stressful environment. Oh, okay. I'm so excited you brought this up. <laughs> so I definitely, definitely believe there's a lot to, depending on a variety of environmental factors, like what toxins you're exposed to, what foods do you eat? What nutrition and other things do you put into your body? What kind of exercise? What's your social circle? What, what are those? Oh my gosh. What's the term for it? The social determinants of health to be super nerdy just because we're playing that up for this moment. <laughs> so we have those got our aces, you know, we got it all. So, uh, we have, all of these factors and even your spirituality and how do you think about and how do you frame what's happening to you and make meaning of it? How do we process it, express ourselves, all of the coping strategies and anything like mindfulness or prayer or journaling or whatever it is that you do. I mean, I, I really have experienced how all of those dramatically impact our health outcomes and also what genes are expressed because you can totally, I hate in the community when someone says, oh, you have this gene or this predisposition, therefore you are doomed toward X negative outcome. And you're not, there's so much that we can control and there's so much that we can change in how those genes are expressed depending on all of the lifestyle factors that we get to choose. So now give us an analysis of how you think the, your ge genetic presentation or your epigenetic presentation was affected 
where all the stresses that you were dealing with at that portion, at that time in your life, when you when your health started to not just decline, but now crash. Mm. So I was eating super healthy and exercising a lot. So on the outside, it looked like I was living a pretty healthy lifestyle, but there's also a point where it can be, I don't want to put the wrong language on it, like calling it compulsive because it wasn't necessarily at a point of a clinical issue. You mean your exercise? That and even just my attention to food because I was so, and this goes along with that type A perfectionistic personality where I was so detail oriented around doing everything the right way to the point that it was actually not healthy because it didn't allow me the freedom to just live my life. Well, but so, do you think perhaps you were, you were uh, responding to the signals that your body was sick? I mean, one of the questions that Matt identifies with our guests all the time is what tools were you using to deal with your health issues before you were diagnosed and knew that you had this disease? Do you think perhaps this was a signal that you were reading or your body was reading so that you could live a very clean and pure life so that you could overcome these challenges that you hadn't even been diagnosed with? Partially. So I think part of that was just my personality that I wanted to do food and exercise the in quotes, the right way, because I like to do things in quotes, the right way. <laughs> um, but there was still a huge gap and a lot of things being missed. Like I wasn't emphasizing sleep and rest the way I needed to. And I had not yet learned to reject hustle culture. So there was definitely a lot of overscheduling and too much busyness. And there were some mindset and spiritual things that were very constructive to me at that time, which I think prevented me from going too far downhill and at the same time, there was a lot that I was missing in terms of retraining the way that I saw the world and the way that I viewed myself and my role within it. Like you mentioned earlier, this desire to save the world. And I really did have that change the world, save the world mentality. And I've learned that that can actually be extremely unhealthy because when one person thinks that they need to, and this could even, I don't identify so much with codependency, but it bleeds into that a little where it's this sense of needing to take care of. And when you overly care for others in a way that rejects the needs of the self, it's so unsustainable. And I was definitely doing that. You can't, you can't love the world if you can't love yourself first, right? Exactly. So Patricia, let's, let's talk about the exercise component of this, because one of the things that Matt and I learned from Dr. Burascano, who we consider one of the Lyme pioneers, um, is that during the course of his clinical career, if patients did not exercise, meaning if they weren't engaging in movement, they could not heal from Lyme disease. But what we also learned is that those people who are overly active with exercise, especially aerobic exercise, there is a reduction in T cells, which then has uh, an immune disrupting event. So do you think it's possible that in your compulsion, and, and again, I know you don't want to call it that, but in your desire to be, I don't remember the air quote word you used to do it perfectly or, or correctly, 
that you are you are exercising to the point where you are you are actually compromising your immunity. I definitely think I was because I was doing too many things. I was pulling all nighter studying. I was exercising a ton. I wasn't giving myself the recovery time I needed. So talk to us about how your doctors were treating you at that point when you're now beginning to crash. They said, stop stressing out. Don't try so hard. And that was pretty much the extent of it. And they weren't wrong, but there also was a lot more to the picture. And I'm disappointed that there wasn't enough education for my doctors to be able to catch that because there was a write-off or a dismissiveness and not necessarily ill-intentioned though. Of course there were some encounters with various doctors along the way that were not so compassionate, uh, but there's the whole issue there in my opinion about our system, not really setting our doctors up to have the time they need with patients and the time they need to take care of themselves so that they can show up as rested as they need. So. So Patricia, talk to us about what information you were giving to your doctors, meaning in order for a doctor to have the capacity to properly diagnose us, we have to be able to provide that doctor with information. And one of the things that we know from conversations with many of our, of, of our podcast guests, and specifically with Dr. Bill Rawls, who in his clinical role talked about some of the challenges that come along with that doctor-patient relationship. Do you think there were any limits in your capacity to accurately communicate all of your symptoms to your doctors so that they could have given you the best possible diagnosis? Absolutely. I was so mentally fatigued and had so much brain fog, even though I was maybe performing to a certain extent in school, I was not all the way there mentally. And it was very difficult to recount everything that was happening to me in my appointments. So I brought my mother to all of my appointments and that was very helpful over the years, having a guardian or a loved one that was able to have the time and the capacity to show up for me and to go to appointments, highly recommend it. If you have someone that can do that for you to anyone listening. Uh, and with that being said, because I did not have the capacity to explain what was happening or to find the language for what was happening. My mom would often fill in an answer for me. And understandably, I can appreciate why now doctors don't like that. And so they thought there was this overbearing parent who was blowing up this situation. And maybe I was doing it for attention was completely untrue. I actually couldn't, I mean, I don't want to say I couldn't speak up for myself, but I was really struggling to, and I wanted her to answer for me because I found at my worst that answering questions was extremely difficult. It's mentally very hard to answer questions when you're not well. Well, but even when you're well, there is going to be an emotional component as well. And because we are emotion, you know, we're going to have an emotional response to the, the illness that we're, that we're, we're dealing with somebody who is not having that same emotional response and who's observing our symptomology can add something that will be, well, should be helpful to the doctor and ultimately assisting us in achieving a diagnosis. And interestingly, my mom actually requested I be tested for Lyme, I think as early as high school. And they said, oh no, 
no, she can't have that. We don't have Lyme in California, (laughs) just like we discussed earlier. So that happened a bunch of times. And so they gave her a hard time, but I'm pretty sure they ordered it to appease her. And it was the typical CDC surveillance criteria tests. And we didn't know what we know now about those potentially not being super accurate. And also about how some people think that for a woman, you should do it on a certain time of your menstrual cycle, maybe exercise first, you know, not everyone does that, but it's something to consider. So we didn't know any of that at the time it came back negative. And then later on, my mom continued to ask other doctors to test for Lyme and was treated very dismissively in a very condescending way. And I don't think we knew yet to say, please note in my chart that you're not giving me this test. But I think there, there were times, (laughs) there were times that she asked and we didn't finally, do you mind if I jump ahead a little bit? Please. We, sorry, you asked such great questions and I'm not sure I'm always directly answering them. There's just so much to say. (laughs) And you're doing a great job. I really appreciate the way you're unpacking everything. Thank you, Rich. Okay. So my mom's friend, it's crazy how this works. And it's so common in the Lyme community. It wasn't a medical professional that said, oh, I think you have Lyme. You should be tested for Lyme. It was my mom's friend who kept persistently pestering my mom lovingly and saying, I think your daughter has Lyme disease. You need to test your daughter for Lyme disease. And I don't know how long that went on, but my mom started calling around to doctors and I won't say which ones, but top university medical centers in my region, as well as other medical centers all said, Nope, we don't treat that. Nope. Sorry. And maybe wouldn't call back or just hung up or whatever. So she could, my mom couldn't find a doctor in our area who admitted to treating Lyme disease. And so we actually went out of state to my mom's friend's doctor out of state. And I'm so grateful that we had the resources to go out of state to an out of network doctor. It's crazy how much out of network care is often required to truly get better which is a whole separate issue in and of itself. But anyway, we went, we were desperate. I had been to, depending on which types of practitioners you include, I'd been to close to 20 medical professionals by that point, all kinds of doctors. And I'd started trying some alternative routes too. I was just trying whatever I could think of and find and trying to be as creative and resourceful as possible. (laughs) And so we went up to this doctor And she gave me one of the tests that's out of pocket and more common in the Lyme community. And that was when I came back positive for a bunch of infections. So when was that in your journey? How old were you when you finally got your Lyme disease diagnosis? That was in 2016. I was in my early twenties and I had already completed a medical leave from college. I had done a full year medical leave, not knowing what I had and already gone back to school. And then it was after I'd gone back to school that we figured out what I had. So talk to us about what all the symptoms were that you were developing between the time that you had last left off on this timeline when you were in middle school and when you ultimately had to take your leave from college. 
it went downhill pretty quickly. It just continued to become progressively worse. So I started experiencing memory issues. So first it was just the sense of mental fog and I would zone out a lot. And I had some really compassionate, awesome teachers in high school, just a couple of them who I look back and I'm so grateful for how nice they were because they knew something was going on. They knew my dad had passed away. They knew that I wasn't well. And I remember it's such a specific example. I hope you don't mind in statistics class. I remember I would not, I had had really poor auditory processing and I don't, I thought maybe it was a character flaw that I just couldn't listen because I always had to ask people to repeat instructions. It was like, you could tell me something and I would never remember it. I'd have to ask you to repeat yourself five times and then I still wouldn't get it. And also with reading, I'd have to reread a page a bunch of times, but anyway, I would hear the lecture, miss all of it. Teacher would say, okay, time to start your work. And I would just stare at the page, do absolutely nothing. And it's crazy because this is not to be expected at all, but I had this teacher who would come over, sit down and just walk me just like super patiently go, okay. And walk me through it and was able to help me function. And it feels a little weird to share that story, but I was not okay. (laughs) And I couldn't function normally. And there were, the norm was that I was behind all the time and confused and felt stupid. And other people were annoyed with me because I couldn't keep up. And I don't know that anyone thought it was defiance, but maybe just not paying attention. And those couple moments of kindness where someone was able to not treat me like I was stupid and basically hold my hand and help me just take the next step. And then the next step, I look back and think how lucky I was to have had those moments. And that that is a blessing. And and it is wonderful when we find educators who are that dedicated to their craft and to their, to their students that we can, we can have those moments, but let's talk about that for a little bit. I mean, you are really smart. You are really articulate. And I don't think that's something that's new. So did you really feel stupid Or did you feel that there was something in the way of you being successful? Because I don't think there really was a time in your entire life where you really were intellectually limited. Well, that's very kind of you to say, Rich. I did feel stupid. And. But what did that mean to you? Did that mean that there was that you you were you were intellectually inept or that there was something wrong with you that was interfering with your capacity to achieve what you had the capacity to achieve. Now, I want to be very careful in how I word this because I don't think that a learning difference or disability should ever be categorized as stupid, but I will say that I thought I was stupid and I thought I had an undiagnosed learning disability or difference. And every time that I talked to an educator or someone about it and said, I think something's wrong. I feel like I'm not processing things correctly. They said, oh, but you do so well. There's no way that you have a difference. And technically the Erlen syndrome that I wear the glasses for now, that's a learning difference. And then as you know, having tick-borne illness will cause cognitive difficulties. So I did feel like something was holding me back and I couldn't put my finger on what it was because I was still a high performer. 
but I also knew something was deeply wrong and it was hard to reconcile or explain that or get help. I think in some ways, because I, and this isn't just in terms of intelligence, but also because my behavior was one of, like you said, the rule follower, I did what I was supposed to. I was the model girl scout. I did my gold award. I mean, I did what I was supposed to and more. And so because of that, people assumed I was okay and said, well, kids that are having a hard time act out, they cause trouble. And I was extremely not okay in many, many capacities, but because I was doing what others wanted me to do, it seemed like I was fine. Well, but you were achieving at a high level, but you were struggling to do that. So let's go back and unpack that term stupid because neither one of us liked that term. Um, But I think it's something we have to look at because you were, your mind was telling you, you were stupid, right? Your survival software was being triggered and your survival software is causing you to turn on yourself and attack yourself for not achieving what you wanted to achieve with the ease you believed you should have. So talk to us about that mental process and whether you believe that was triggered by your line. It certainly could have been triggered by Lyme. And then also part of it could have just been my own. I'm not super into subconscious stuff, but in this case, it could have been a subconscious thing or just, you know, we all have our wounds. I think it could have been partially that as well. Partially related to personality, partially related to upbringing. Um, just feeling, or do you no, yeah, but, but it could be, it could just be a part of the signals that we all have, part of the survival software that gets triggered, you know, distinguishing our mind from our, our cognitive function. And it was just the way your mind was acting in that moment in response to the threat that you were feeling by not achieving what you knew you could achieve. Mm-hmm. And something that I wonder, and this is, me externally processing, but something I wondered because I was always the last one to finish everything. I was always the last person to finish a test and just took my time with everything. I always felt like I was not good at regurgitating things. I wasn't really good at memorization, but I was, if I could understand the process or the theory behind something, I could work backwards to finish it, which is why everything took me so long. And I, don't know if that's just the way that I'm wired. I've also started to wonder in adulthood if maybe part of that was my way, because I believe we're all incredibly resilient and with whatever we're given, we can learn incredibly adaptive ways to work around our challenges. And so I also have wondered if maybe because of whatever undiagnosed learning differences I had, maybe I had learned ways of working around it and maybe that was part of it. So we'll never know, you know, the more I hear about adults with ADHD, which I don't have a diagnosis for, the more I think, oh, this is so interesting. There's so much about the brain that we're not taught at a young age that I feel the more that becomes available to us. I'm just curious how that will affect ease of functioning in the world. So Patricia, before I spend all night talking with you, because I'm finding you fascinating, but Matt is going to cut my head off if I don't get to the end of my piece of this. Can you so finish already, Rich? Please. I, so, so Patricia, in, in, in the spirit of being fair to my partner, uh, I, I need to ask you to just recount for me the 20 doctors that you went to see, and not by name, but by discipline, so that we have an understanding of 
all the different places you went to to try to get a diagnosis before you were able to take advantage of the privilege that you had to find a doctor that could diagnose you out of network and actually out of the region where you were living. Okay, I'm not going to catch them all. Just the general GP first, pediatrician, family doctor, and then doctors at school. So in college, I went to the school health center quite a few times. I was a regular, not sure (laughs) how they felt about seeing me so often. And then I went to a neurologist and an endocrinologist. And I don't even remember all of the specialists I went to. I just know that we ran the gamut of tests, MRIs, CAT scans, and tons of blood tests, nasal swabs other tests that no one likes to talk about because they're unpleasant, just so many tests. And I went to an allergist and started seeing various types of chiropractors and did some body work. I'm definitely missing a bunch. Oh, I saw a nutritionist too. Just a lot. If, if you name it, I probably saw them at some point and I'm just forgetting to mention them right now. So Patricia, I have so many questions to follow up on what Rich was discussing with you. So the first question I want to explore deeper with you is about testing. So you mentioned that people have different beliefs about how you can provoke the Lyme bacteria to come out more aggressively. So these inadequate tests can pop positive correctly and give you an accurate diagnosis. So we've heard people tell us that if you exercise, it'll bring out the Lyme bacteria. If you eat things like sugar, which the Lyme bacteria feeds on, it will bring out the bacteria and you'll test positive. So we've heard a lot of interesting things like that to help people get an accurate diagnosis, but we've never heard somebody tell us that you need to test during a certain time of your cycle. So can you talk to us more about what you've heard about that so our listeners can learn from that as well? Mm, I will do my best. Of course, I'm not a medical professional who's qualified to say. I remember the doctor I was seeing at that time. I've seen a few different Lyme doctors at this point. I, I would definitely tell people to ask their doctor and to look into it. I feel like it was supposed to be day 21, but I could be completely wrong. And as far as why that is, I really couldn't tell you. I also know that there are people who say things about the moon cycles and how that affects the Lyme bacteria. So there's something there potentially. I just can't give you the biochemical breakdown as to why. I'm so sorry. (laughs) No, I think that was very helpful, Patricia. And you did say that your mom was aggressive in getting you tested before you got diagnosed. And when they ran the typical screening at your regular doctors, it sounded like you didn't test positive back then. Is that correct? Yes. And then eventually your mom's friend kept urging you to see a specialist and you had to leave the state to see a specialist and get a specialized test. Now, was that Igenix that you ran your blood work through? We did hygienics and DNA connections because of the politics of treating Lyme disease. That doctor was extremely concerned and wanted to have two positive tests from two separate labs to show, look, this person was definitely positive for Lyme. And that was what she felt safe doing in her practice. And you tested positive on both hygienics and DNA connections? Yes. Were you tested for any co-infections as well? Yes, I tested positive for Bartonella Hensley, Ehrlichia, and oh my gosh, I'm forgetting some other ones, but there were a few. And I know if you're not comfortable sharing the name of the doctor, are you comfortable sharing the state you had to leave California to go to to get this diagnosis and to see a Lyme specialist? Out of respect for that doctor, I won't share because it's their wishes that they be kept extremely anonymous. 
Okay, so Patricia, once you got diagnosed, did you continue to treat with this doctor or did you find a doctor more locally in California that you can treat with? I worked with that doctor until my health insurance changed. And so they were out of network, but I believe I was able to get some coverage and then it changed and they were saying, nope, no more out of state care. And then we looked for someone in state. All right, so let's focus on your treatment with this out of state doctor. When you first got your positive diagnosis for Lyme, Bartonella, Ehrlichia, and other co-infections, what was the first treatment protocol you were given by this doctor? The first treatment protocol, we started with a mix of herbs and antibiotics. And of course, and, and oral, not intravenous. I never did intravenous antibiotics. So as you know, <laughs> there's so much about how all of that is done and people have mixed views about it. I personally believe that I benefited from the mix of herbs and oral antibiotics, but we also were very careful to make sure I was taking something that would address all three forms of Lyme simultaneously. So that if it were to shift from the spirochete form into a cyst form, for example, to resist the antibiotics, I was taking something that would attack all of those forms. And Patricia, if you don't, if you don't know the answer to this, it's totally okay, but I'm going to push you a little bit here because I think you're super smart. Can you tell us what are the three forms of the Lyme bacteria and what antibiotics were you given to address each of them? I think it's spirochete, cell wall deficient. That's the one I'm not sure about. And cyst form. I don't know. Thank you. <laughs> I don't know which herbs or which antibiotics specifically addressed which form. I just know that I was doing several at the same time to address them all and that we were rotating them pretty frequently, trying to avoid the whole superbug issue or antibiotics resistance. I was also taking probiotics. So I, I had a very detailed schedule. The spreadsheet was a nightmare. My mom is a scientist and she managed that. But that schedule was a full-time job where it was wake up, have breakfast, do the antimicrobials, and then two hours later, take your probiotics and immune support protocols, and then repeat again later in the day. So I was doing that cycle twice a day, every day. So do you recall the names of some of the antibiotics or all the antibiotics that you were on? I know you mentioned that you cycled and there were a lot of them, but do you recall the names of specific antibiotics you were on? I believe I would have to go back in my records to check because I was so foggy. <laughs> I couldn't always remember everything, but it was written down. So doxycycline at one point, azithromycin at another point, Zithromax, I'm not sure if that's the same as some of, I don't know. There, there were, I also did the, the yellow one. That's a malarial drug. I believe. Oh, that, that the out of, out of a one I probably am butchering the name of it I didn't do the one what there's one that starts with a c that often causes Achilles heel issues I didn't I didn't, I didn't oh gosh see this is why I actually can't <laughs> this one. I didn't do the one that causes the ankle injuries um but I did I did one that's common for babesia and malaria and I remember it was yet like yellow paint color <laughs> and Sorry, I, I don't. No, no, it's okay. So, but it sounds like you were hitting it from both ends. You were using antibiotics and 
other types of pharmaceutical drugs like anti-malaria medication to address the Lyme and various other co-infections, but you're also hitting it from an herbal standpoint if from a from a kill protocol side, right? So you were you were killing the pathogens with antibiotics, other pharmaceuticals, and herbs, and then you were using herbs and other supplements to rebuild your body and strengthen your immune system, it sounds like as well. Yes. And then later on I also added ozone therapy as an antimicrobial protocol partially because it also has regenerative properties and it doesn't have the side effects and doesn't cause the damage to your microbiome like the antibiotics will. So ozone was big and there are other benefits too, like just oxygenating your body and you know, all the other things that that does that are positive in addition to killing the bad stuff. And I did a variety of other things too, like the dreaded coffee enema which I never thought I would admit publicly in a recorded platform and did a lot of yoga, actually did yoga teacher training at one point and just a lot of mindfulness did. Uh, while I have issues, people saying that it's in your head, I do think that working with a professional mental health counselor is very helpful. So I did therapy for years with someone who had a health psych background and also was very familiar with trauma and adult children of alcoholics. So that was very helpful. And I did, I worked with a practitioner who did a mix of body work and modalities to help with nervous system regulation. So it started out with somatic experiencing therapy, but then that practitioner transitioned more into organic intelligence, which has a different approach to nervous system retraining and also some cranial sacral and things like that. All right. So you just gave us a whole bunch there. So to back up, I just, so does Mepron ring a bell? I just want to give some clarity for the, for the Babesia stuff. Cause Mepron is, I think the, the brand name for Adivaquan, which I can't pronounce, which is the common yellow substance for Babesia. I think so. Okay. So now you mentioned, so we're going to kind of go back and, and really unwrap all the stuff you just gave us here. So talking about the herbs still, I know you mentioned that there were some antifungals as well. So do you remember yeah. any of the herbs specifically you were taking to address the antimicrobial properties and also the rebuilding properties? Okay. So I also took a pharmaceutical antifungal. I actually still take Nystatin and I've I've done so many herbs. And the thing is I've done a lot of herbal tinctures that are blends. So you know how some people are very sensitive and when you take one at a time, like they're only taking cat's claw or they're mine are all a mix. So I'd really have to go pull out the bottles and read you what's in them because okay. there's so many. So Patricia, give us an idea. Day one, you get your treatment, you're taking all the antibiotics in the morning Two late, two hours later, you're taking your probiotics and all the other herbals, and then you're rinsing and repeat that within the afternoon with your mom and your schedule, and you're doing this every day. Day one, how do you feel after starting this protocol? I felt awful. <laughs> uh, with that being said, I don't, I don't think I had a super crazy Herx my first day, the Herxheimer reaction which I'm sure your listeners already know what that is. But if anyone's listening that doesn't know what that is, it's the toxic overload reaction. When you start killing the pathogens, they release all of these neurotoxins that make you feel like garbage. So unless you want to add anything to that. 
No, but I, I am curious, Patricia, what were you doing to detox since you were using such an aggressive kill protocol? Mm, yeah. So the coffee enemas, although I think it took me a while to wrap my head around starting that because nobody wants to, I don't know anybody that's excited when they hear about coffee enemas. It's pretty gross. So let's see, I did that. I eventually, st- I, I didn't do, okay. So detox wise. Were you, were you doing anything in the beginning when you first started the protocol with your doctor out of state for, from a detox standpoint? She gave me a sheet and it, the main thing I was doing then I was taking binders. So chlorella, activated charcoal, bentonite clay in capsule form away from food, away from supplements. That was the main thing I was doing back then. I also did Alka-Seltzer gold and a few other things, but most of my detox protocols, I really got a handle on those later. And that was infrared sauna, dry skin brushing, rebounding, movement, and coffee enemas. And then also herbs that help detox as well. Like opening up and activating the body's natural pathways for detoxing. So you, t- you told us that you felt like crap when you first started these treatment protocols, when you were taking the things in the beginning, like activity charcoal and the bentonite clay and the chlorella to help you detox, were you noticing a pretty quick response and a decrease in your symptoms? Or was it just so much overload that you weren't even feeling better when you were taking those, those binders and, and detox uh, protocols? I was so overloaded. I felt like garbage before I started. I felt like garbage after I started and I felt like garbage after the binders. (laughs) I just felt like trash all the time and people would go, Oh, do you feel better? I was like, I don't know. I feel the same and the same is bad. So (laughs) I I was just a vague sense of not well. And it was very nonspecific, which can be very confusing. And the ambiguity can be difficult to work with because you go, well, what's working? And I was like, I have no idea. I'm hoping this stuff is working, but I still feel the same. And that went on for quite a while. I had to look at things more so in terms of a few months at a time, like three months into treatment, I looked back and went, you know, I still feel bad. So if I went only based on how I felt, I wouldn't be able to measure a difference, but I can see that I have increased capacity to what I did a few months ago. So even though I was still in a lot of pain, my head still hurt. My memory was not the best. And I was dealing with all of those dementia-like feeling problems. I saw that I could do more. And that was incremental throughout the whole process where three months, six months, one year, I could see, wow, I can now do this thing. I feel ready to handle this thing that I want to do that I definitely could not have done a year ago. Will it be easy? No, but I know that now I can tackle it, even if it will be challenging. And being a learning to recognize that capacity was really how I figured out how much progress I was making. So give us an, a specific example. Again, I'm sorry for challenging you with so many hard questions here because I have a follow-up hard question after this. Give us an example three months in of something you were doing that you couldn't do before and you had the realization of, wow, I'm making progress. I don't remember exactly what it was three months in. I think it was more so at that point that maybe loved ones were, it it was mostly school related. I was doing a little bit better in school. Uh, Cognitively, you were able to do more and the brain fog was lifting a little bit. It sounds like (laughs) I still felt a pretty thick fog. I don't know that I would say it felt lifted. It was definitely San Francisco type weather, but 
the let's see it i don't know it took years before i felt like i started to get my brain back and that was a whole thing in and of itself feeling like i didn't have my creative capacity and being someone that identified heavily as a thinker i felt like i couldn't think so that was that was interesting but no it was more so just that maybe i had was able to do more activity i, I think a better example is jumping ahead a few, a couple more than a year into treatment, because then it was more measurable or more specific where I, when I went back to college right after my medical leave, I was doing the minimum number of credits to be considered full-time. I was only doing 12, which is still a lot, but you know, going from what some students do, that was a big reduction in course load for me. So when I went on, cause when I went back, I did no extracurriculars. I had quit all of my leadership positions. I quit the music major because music is a very difficult major and it's very physically rigorous, which not everyone realizes if you're a performance emphasis. So I quit all of the one credit music classes. And so when I went back, I was really only showing up to my required classes and then going home, sleeping, eating, sticking to my very structured food list and supplement routine and going to the doctor. And that was pretty much all I did. And then the next semester I added in, it's actually a really big deal. I received a position on associated students on the event programming board. And that was pretty intense. Uh, and I definitely knew it was going to be a big stretch, but I also didn't want to complete, not in a FOMO sort of way exactly, but I didn't want to miss out on the college experience and opportunities that I would never have again after undergrad. So the fact that I went from doing nothing beyond class to then having this very involved leadership role was a really big deal. And then the year after that, I became an RA or a resident assistant in the dorm halls. And that is a really involved role. And that was something that I was very much measuring with my line treatment progress to decide what types of roles I would apply for. So Patricia, give us some time context here. How long was it from the time you took your medical leave and started treating until the time you went back to college in a limited capacity? So let's see, I took my medical leave spring of my second year of college and slept 14 plus hours a day, went to the doctor. And that was about all I did. I had to receive permission from my doctor that it was okay to sleep 14 hours a day and to do nothing else. And I did do yoga teacher training during that time. There was actually the natural NRF2 activation that I started during that time. That was right after that, that I started yoga teacher training. And then I went back to school maybe a half a year after that. And then I was diagnosed with Lyme within a half a year after that and had that rough semester of just very reduced capacity and then had two more years of college undergrad after that. And then I did a master's immediately after. Does that answer your question? It does. Yep. So you okay. took your medical leave before you even got diagnosed. Yes. Okay, gotcha. So you were back in school while you were treating and you were making these little, I shouldn't say little, these really major steps of going, 
you know, part-time and then taking on more coursework and, and participating in extracurricular activities and then being an RA, that built up over the time of, of several years leading up to grad school. So uh, a, couple, a couple of questions that I want to back up to again. So this is, I don't think there's a right answer to this question, so feel free to just express your opinion on this. We've heard from people that looking back, they think treating so aggressively that they hurt so bad and detox doesn't make them feel better is a bad thing. And we've heard from other people that it's an, it's a must and necessary to overcome Lyme disease. So what is your opinion? Do you think that you had to be as aggressive as you were to be as sick as you were from Herxing without any relief? Or do you think you could have taken it maybe a little bit milder and had the same results that you've had today? It's so hard to say. And I believe it's important that it be individualized. So I would not want to say as a blanket statement, well, I think this, and I think everyone should do this because what's best for me may not be what's best for someone else and vice versa. So I did it the way that I did it. I don't have any regrets. I think it's worked out pretty well for me. I've definitely gotten much better. And also my approach has shifted significantly. I'm not nearly as aggressive now as I used to be. I focus much more on what's sustainable over the long haul what allows me to live my life. And I'm not as focused on aggressive killing protocols. With that being said, I also might be in or close to remission. It's so hard to know that for sure, definitively. So I think it depends. I think there could be merit to taking a more gentle long-term approach to treatment and supporting the immune system. Because I know some people focus more on retraining the nervous system, supporting the immune system and letting the body fight the pathogens or keep them at bay that way. And then others focus on eradicating the pathogens. And sometimes you can wipe out a lot of the gut microbiome in the process. So, and it can also just be an intense, you know, that level of intensity, people have mixed views on how that affects the body. And it's so hard to know for sure. I'll just say that what I did seemed to work for me. It sounds like you really have taken both approaches. In the beginning, you hit it hard and you were at a point where you were herxing and it really made you feel even worse. But now you're at a point or I should say later on, you got to a point where you, you backed off a little bit and you were doing a more manageable treatment where you were able to function better. So it sounds like both were successful for you in your experience. That's true. It's been a hybrid and it, it's depending on this season of my life and how I'm progressing and what's going on and what my goals or responsibilities are. We've adjusted it around that as well. Like there were times when, for example, if I was going, because I was in college and was a student, if I was heading into finals season, we would not start a new antibiotic before finals. And there were times, oh man, what's the one where they, it's a, an antibiotic shot in the butt. It's very, very, in, oh my gosh, I don't remember oh, what the- it starts with a B, Ficillin, I think. Yes. One. Uh, so I was doing those and that was probably, that may have been my strongest Turks ever. I was not a pleasant person to be around after that. It was really rough. And so we had, I started it during grad school and we decided to cease, cease and desist and resume after I graduated because it was too much. So just a few house cleaning questions to get us caught up chronologically before I ask you some, some side questions again. Give us an idea of when you left your out-of-state doctor and 
found your local doctor. And if, if, if you're comfortable sharing, you know, who that doctor is, and if not, that's totally fine. And then also, when did you stop the antibiotics? So really, when did you transition from your state doctor to your local doctor? And when did you transition off of antibiotics into a more or primarily herbal and natural healing modality? Mm. So in the beginning, it was a strong mix of both. And I worked with that doctor for maybe a year to a year and a half. And then I switched to an in-state doctor. I briefly worked with a doctor in Beverly Hills, but then we found Dr. Nicola Descharm in San Diego. She was 12. You know her? I we love, love we've her. interviewed her. She's one of our first guests. We love Dr. Descharm. She actually donated some of her products to our Global Ambulance fundraiser. She is amazing. Okay. One of the best doctors out there, in our opinion. Big fan, big, big fan. Love her a lot. Okay. So she's my current doctor and I've been working with her since probably January of 2019, I'm guessing, or no, winter of 2018, I think is when I started with her and she's fantastic. And she was conveniently a 12 minute drive from my college campus. Talk about serendipity. That's amazing. So it's just for our listeners, we didn't know because I think most of our listeners know by now we do a pre-interview questionnaire and we didn't know that. So to hear that is very surprising and it makes us very happy that you have had such success with Dr. Ducharme, like so many others who have seen her as well. And um, we're, we're very happy to hear that. So so now when you transition to your local doctor and you had that LA doctor, I'm sorry, you had, I think you said Beverly Hills doctor for a little bit. Was that who it was? Yeah. So, and, and then you pivoted all back over to Dr. Ducharme who you're treating with now. It sounds like you're, you're on a just natural treatment protocol with herbs and supplements and things like that. Is that correct? Yes. Let me think. So I went off of a lot of antibiotics actually when I switched to the Beverly Hills doctor. And then we ended up doing when I switched to Dr. Nicola and I try to be careful about saying which doctor and the antibiotics, just because I am so grateful for my doctors because they have helped me get better. And I just don't want anything to ever be used against them. But we, we, when I switched to working with Dr. Nicola, we did start doing a lot more herbs and then also essential oil protocols. And of course, many of them are not safe for oral consumption. So I just want to say that. Um, but we, we did that and I did do bicillin and a couple other things after that, but I also started incorporating more ozone therapy and other things like that. Okay. So I do want to jump back. You mentioned that you were a very creative person and because of your intense brain fog, you feel like you lost that. And I know many of us, you know, identify with our creative outlets and the things that we do for, for pleasure like that. So how did you cope with the loss of what you felt was your identity while you were treating and so sick? Hmm. So I was, it's such a big question. <laughs> I, oh, you should be honored. We don't ask, we, we only ask hard questions of our really good guests. So it's, <laughs> we're, we're not trying to be difficult. Thank you. Also, they're all good guests. So, uh, so I was struggling a lot with identity and it's a unique journey in my opinion with Lyme because you I felt like everything was stripped away. My friendships. I mean, I, it's not like all my friends left me not throwing any shade there, but it, 
being able to interact socially in the world changes dramatically and you can become very isolated, which I was, and wasn't able to participate in typical 20 something year old fun and activities. And so there was that loss of socialization and loss of esteem because I noticed the way that others perceived me changed a lot. I was used to being treated and viewed one way based on my performance to then losing that and being criticized quite a bit for even being called lazy and things like that. And that was extremely painful. And then not being able to create and do the things that I wanted for myself. Like you mentioned, like not, you know, I, I stopped singing for a while. I'm still not singing that much. And so that was a big loss. And then just the biggest loss though, I think was the loss of feeling free in my body and in my mind and in my thoughts, because I feel very strongly that creativity and imagination and the ability to, no matter what kind of prison you're in physically or metaphorically or whatever you're in, uh, there is so much freedom potentially in your mind and what you can, in your inner world and what you cultivate there and not having my mental faculties and feeling like there was this, I felt like there was a physical clamp around my head, just closing in all the time. And so I didn't have that capacity. And it just, it, it did, like you alluded to, it felt like this very strange, oppressive block on my life in every capacity where I felt so limited and confused. And with my therapist, we did a lot of work around identity and learning to let go of all of the things I was attached to. And a lot of external things that I was attached to for identity, like my performance, like being able to earn certain grades or the accomplishments I had. And so much of my identity was intricately related to what I produced and what I did. It was mostly doing related. My identity was based on activity and the ability to do. And so when I no longer could take action I think the biggest change in identity was learning to let go and simply be, and that simply being was enough. And for me, that was a very spiritual journey as well. So without, you know, pushing my own beliefs too much, it was just, there was a lot of grace. And for me, that sense of relying on what i believe in as God or conceptualize as God and, and surrendering because I was trying to do it all myself. And so learning to let go and not do it myself, uh, also helped me become a much more compassionate person because for me, that was the idea of grace, but it helped me learn to not be so harsh on myself and others. And actually that's probably the biggest outcome for me in terms of how Lyme disease has changed my life because I wouldn't want to go back to the person I was before that change and transformation. So Rich is going to get there with you about your transformation, but it sounds like in, initially you felt like Lyme stole your identity. Working with your therapist, you had to redefine what your identity really was. 
but then leaning it on your faith, you realize that you had to just surrender and, and just, and just be okay with living in the now. But I feel like you also had to have hope. Did you have hope and faith that you were going to get better? I did. I definitely did. And there's no simple answer to that because there was a hope that I would recover. And then at the same time, a sense of, well, how do I make my life meaningful or worth living, even if I don't recover? And you can have a meaningful life, even at, I believe you can have a meaningful life, even at the worst parts of illness. And, you know, some people don't recover and I don't mean to be depressing and that that's beyond Lyme, right? I, I think that with Lyme, we really have good odds of recovering, but maybe if someone is diagnosed, I hope you don't mind me going here. If someone has a different illness or maybe in my opinion, maybe something that hasn't been diagnosed yet with something that's treatable, but they're told, Oh, you just have this and you're going to live with it for the rest of your life. You know, so many people who turn out to have Lyme disease are told that with other diagnoses and not to get too opinionated on that, but it's for me, holding on to that hope of recovering was big. And I remember a specific moment when I felt good enough that I remember standing there and thinking, Hmm, I feel different. I still feel very, very bad, but it's good enough. If I had to live like this for the rest of my life, I could do that because there was a point where I was in so much pain where I was thinking and praying, I don't think I can make it. I don't think this is sustainable. I don't know how anyone survives living like this and this level of pain every day. And so I was thinking I was dying and there was even, I was never quite suicidal or having a lot of suicidal ideation, but I reached a point of praying, like, please take this away from me and trying to make peace with, if I did die, trying to be okay with that and really confronting mortality in that way. And so, and that of course (laughs) brings a lot of shifts about my worldview and how I view life, but it, it was really profound when I reached the point of thinking as hard as this is, it's a little bit more fathomable to make it through And still be optimistic and hope that it will continue to become easier and better, but to say, I can live with this. So Patricia, I I just want to expand upon what you said, because we couldn't agree more that people can have a purpose and an impact in life when they're at their worst and bed bound. So one of our, one of our good friends who we met when we first started to take bootcamp two years ago, Nick Turinsky, when he was bed bound with his advocacy and everything he was doing, he had impacted tens of thousands of lives while being bedbound. So it's, it's, it's amazing to see the will and the drive of people while they're so sick and how they can have a meaningful impact on other people in the world. But I think you're right that, that as you continue to heal, and Nick has made progress as well, he's no longer bedbound, right? And he's continuing to heal on his journey. But as you continue to heal, I think you were able to touch even more people than you could while you were, while you were you know, then compared to how you, you could when you were sick. But the question I really want to ask you is, without that hope, would you have a desire or a will to treat? Because treating is difficult. So if you, if you didn't have hope that you could get better, do you think that you would have treated the way you did and gotten the successes that you've been able to achieve over the last couple of years? Mm, if I didn't have hope of recovery, I don't think I would have endured the treatments. 
That's interesting. You bring that up. I wouldn't have even thought to say that, but it's big. And also I was taught to live with the mindset of saying I'm recovering from instead of saying I'm sick. So I was taught to say I'm recovering from Lyme disease or fill in the blank with another condition. You know, cause it seems conflicting and I, and I, I understand and it can relate very much to what you're saying that on one hand, you're saying if this is what it is and I'm going to have to live like this, I can have a meaningful life and be okay with that. But on the other hand, you want to have, you want to believe that I can get even better and I want to continue to treat because if you didn't believe that you wouldn't treat basically. Right. So I feel like you had two sides of the coin that you were, you were dealing with there at that time. There are many layers of complexity and ambiguity when it comes to something like this. <laughs> it's also like layers of an onion is the way I learned to see it, where I would go through one symptom or one experience and it would come to the surface and that would be the most present for a little while. And then I would shed that layer and then there would be something new underneath it that, and rather than freaking out and thinking, oh, there's a new symptom, something that I haven't dealt with before the thought was, oh, it's a new layer. I've shed the old surface layer that my body was ready to handle. And now there's a new thing coming to the surface and that's what my body wants to handle next, which framing it that way, I think reduced the overwhelm that comes with this onslaught (laughs) of things you didn't ask for. And instead seeing it as a new opportunity. It makes it more manageable to approach rather than being overwhelmed, I think is what you're saying, right? Mm-hmm. So there's so many things I have written here, and I know where we're, we've had you for so long. I'm just going to try to quickly get through a couple of them. So talk to us about this Erlen syndrome, because many of us in the Lyme community, including myself, when I was at my worst, I was severely light, sens- light sensitive, including I was also sound sensitive as well. But I mean, I couldn't watch television, even on low volume, because of the, the visual stimuli would have such a negative impact on me neurologically. And over time that got better and there's still some residual traces of that, but do you think there's a connection between Erlen syndrome and your Lyme disease? Or do you think you would have had that regardless of your tick-borne illness? It's hard to know. I also sunburned my eyes when I was in third grade and my eyes were never totally the same after that. And Erlen syndrome may have been genetic for me. So my thinking is I may have been born with Erlen syndrome and then tick-borne illness whether I was born with it or contracted it later, tick-borne illness probably exacerbated the Erlen syndrome and then sunburning my eyes probably further exacerbated it. So also talk to us about coffee enemas briefly, if you can, because oh. this, this has been a topic on several Lyme support groups this week that I've been a part of. And I, I won't say who, but on, on uh, earlier in the week, we had somebody give us a very vivid description of what it was like to tell us that it's really not that bad. And I have to be honest, I still will not do it, even though it was explained to me and, and, and is not as scary as you would think, but talk to us about how you worked up the nerve to do it, what the process is like and how it helps you in your healing journey. That's hilarious. I won't be too graphic or vivid. I certainly don't wish to be. (laughs) It was maybe peer pressure, actually, I really didn't want to. And there was a woman with a wellness center nearby that I was working with. And I was working with her for other things like the ozone and juices. And she's the one that introduced me to dry skin brushing and infrared sauna. And so all of those were helping so much and I respected her and she was so persistent that I finally went, okay, fine, maybe. And my also 
a family member of mine had was also really in had become into it. And so they helped me through it, helped me get the kit, helped me get it all set up, helped. And also something that I was actually talking to a friend about it this week. When you have brain fog, just wrapping your head around a new procedure is overwhelming, let alone the unappealing nature of a coffee enema of just an enema period. And then of adding coffee to the mix, it's just all around not enticing. So adding the procedure of needing to understand instructions and follow instructions was also very overwhelming. And I always refer people to their YouTube videos of people who walk you through instructions. I'm going, I'm not going to help you with that, but somebody else did it. So go watch them. And I, I don't do them regularly. I don't personally, I mean, again, I don't want to give anyone advice on this, but I don't think it's necessarily healthy to do them all the time for various reasons. I think it can be a little too much maybe to do them all the time. But I do think like if I were to have a really bad Herx, then I think it's the most efficient way to get back on track because I found, I reached a point in my healing journey where if I had a really bad Herx, like from the Vicillin or something, for example, where I felt like death and it was just catastrophe, I would do a coffee enema the day of or the day after, and then maybe the day after that. And then I'd be pretty much back to normal. So why, what, what is it about a coffee enema that helps you detox and recover from a Herx? Hmm, that's a great question. So it helps cycle through. My understanding is that it helps cycle through and flush out and detox your liver. And that's the important thing. Actually, that's really important. It's so it's, I was not doing it because of feeling like I needed help with movements. Again, I hate talking about this stuff, but you know, some people do enemas or colon hydrotherapy or things like that because they're having a little trouble. That was not my problem. Actually, the reason I did it was because of the pharmaceuticals I had taken and the impact that can have on your liver. I wanted to make sure that I was detoxing the liver enzymes. And we actually did test where I was and then where I was after, and we did see an improvement. So you, you had, you had data behind that before the coffee enema, you, you checked your liver levels and then after the coffee enema and you showed significant improvement post coffee enema. Yes. And this was because of, you think, damage done from treatment that you had these, these problems with your liver? Potentially. I mean, I never reached the point where I had major problems with my liver, but it's something to be aware of that when you're treating aggressively, there can be these byproducts that aren't positive, like an overload on your liver from all the medication that you're taking. So the so next, preventative. oh, sorry, I didn't mean to. Oh, that's okay. So it's more, I think you said a, as a preventative, is that what you said? Yes. So Patricia, the next question I want to ask you is about the nervous system retraining. And I know you mentioned that it was called diff- a couple of different things as they transitioned it from one, I guess, one technique to another, but overall, what is, give us a general idea of what is nervous system retraining and how is that helpful for you to, to recover from Lyme disease? So there are different approaches. I've done organic intelligence. That's the program I'm currently in. And I like it because it's so 
laid back and gentle. I love how gentle it is and that you can go at your own pace. I'm free to create little shifts. And one of their slogans is the job is enjoyment. And so it's about being sustainable and gentle. And it's really their, their own approach to how they share mindfulness in a way that's based on working with your nervous system in a way that's very friendly and breaking this addiction to intensity and opening up capacity and thresholds and the window of tolerance of how do we respond to stress? How do we make meaning of our experience? How do we connect? And rather than focusing so much on what's wrong, it's shifting from the what's wrong attention to more about what's going right. And that's not in a way of shoving the problems under the rug, but there can be so much overemphasis. And especially when dealing with so much pain and all of these problems that we deal with, it's really easy to fixate on how bad we feel and what's wrong. And so it's learning to not ignore it not deny it and not suppress it. That's definitely not the point, but it's shifting and figuring out, okay, what's working, what feels good. How do I create more of that? And again, I'm just a person learning it. I'm not the practitioner, but I feel like that coupled with some other shifts I've made in the last year about shifting my mindset, like instead of focusing so much, cause I was a very all or nothing person and it was go hard, do this thing super intensely, do it really well do it until it's done. And that's not a sustainable way to live, especially with a condition like Lyme. And so shifting towards small progress, celebrating baby steps and celebrating accomplishments and act, sorry, celebrating accomplishments and actions rather than just saying, okay, here's the, like only celebrating the big outcome and then jumping on to the next thing and not even taking the moment to appreciate and be grateful for it. It's actually something I got from Christina Consavellos, one of your past guests. So all of that, love her, by the way, all of that fits together with the nervous system retraining and cultivating a more healthy way of viewing action and viewing myself, viewing my body, listening to my body and how to be gentle with myself. So in general, I just want to make sure I understand that what the nervous system retraining is all about and, and the mindset shifting is it allows you to respond better to stress. And I think the, you, you said that the, the motto is the job is enjoyment. So it's, it's about having a positive outlook on a situation rather than a negative outlook. And when doing that, it allows your body to respond more appropriately to stress and therefore not have a, a, an immune dysfunctioning, I'm sorry, immune disrupting event because you're responding to it better. And therefore you're not going to have a health setback. Is that the idea behind all this? Yeah. And it's, you, you hit the nail on the head with, you know, the job is enjoyment and actually that and the other shifts that they encourage that maybe I'm not able to articulate at this time, those open up our capacity or threshold so that when there is a big event, we're more resilient to integrate it and then move on and cycle normally through that parasympathetic and sympathetic cycle instead of getting stuck because there's a lot of freezy business. And what I had was a lot of, and I wouldn't say it's all, all quite worked out, but a lot of nervous system dysregulation, which I found is very common with a lot of my friends as well that have dealt with Lyme. And so I would get stuck in fight, flight, or freeze. And a lot of it was freeze. I was just stuck in freeze a lot. And I would maybe be overly 
sympathetically charged for a while where I actually, and this is important for a little while, I felt I one, and this could have been related to insulin resistance as well, but I actually wondered if I maybe had bipolar issues because I would become super, super, super active that I thought, oh my gosh, is this what it's like to be manic? Cause I would become super driven and creative and just want to over-exercise and dance for hours. And I would want to do all of this stuff when I was up and then I would crash and I would crash for a few days and be super fatigued. And it was, it was not the typical cycling that you would want to see in a healthy person. And it, it was not bipolar disorder, but it through regulating my nervous system and my blood sugar levels that has become much more consistent. And I feel much more consistent, which makes my life much easier. So Patricia, this seems like a really important hack because many people tell us they make significant progress, sometimes 80, 90, 99% better. Then they have a, an extreme life stressor happen, whether it be physical or emotional and they crash. But it sounds like that with this hack, which is nervous system retraining, it allows you to respond better to physical or emotional stressors and not have these major setbacks many people have experienced. So if people want to learn more about this, where would you direct them? Is, would you direct them to Christina? Would you direct them to a particular website or resource? Where can they go to learn more about this to, to explore this deeper, to learn about it as a possible modality in their healing journey? I'm most familiar with organic intelligence. So folks can look that up. They can DM me. They can message me and ask for the link. I can also even introduce people. So the practitioner that I work with, I would be happy to connect them and she could help answer questions from the practitioner point of view. So that's available. And if, if there were ever to be too many calls coming in where she couldn't handle all of them, it's hard to see that happening, but if it did, you know, there would be other people in that community and network that they could be connected to. Cause I think it is helpful to talk to someone that really knows what they're talking about. And I know that the person I work with is happy to do that and be that resource. So the other thing, so Christina has done DNRS, which is a little bit different. It's a different approach, but if anyone has questions about that, they can contact her. Well, I don't want to volunteer her, <laughs> but okay, we'll volunteer her. You can tell her, you can tell her mathematics can volunteer her. <laughs> okay. She totally, yeah, whatever. Okay. No, she's, she's great. Um, we, we, we recommend Christina all the time to people to reach out to for, for support and services. So the two, two final questions, talk to us about ozone. We, we know that there's various types of ozone. And the most common one is intravenous or IV ozone that helps really kill not only the Lyme bacteria, but many co-infections, viruses, pathogens, et cetera, in your blood and really clean it out and then spit it back into your body after running ozone through the blood being extracted out of your body. Now we haven't heard much about the other types and it sounds like you've done some others as well. So can you talk to us about what other types of ozone you've done and how you felt they've helped you? I've done intravenous ozone, like you mentioned. And then, but it is very expensive. I think it's extremely effective, but also very expensive. And you need to go to someone who can do it safely because if they don't do it safely, it can be dangerous. So I also have a home ozone kit. It's actually right next to me in this cabinet. It is, so I have ozone, sorry, I have oxygen tanks and an ozone generator that converts O2 to O3. And there are multiple ways of administering it. I'm very consistent about doing it in my water because it's so easy. It's part of my morning routine. I take that with a nootropic and that's how I start my day instead of coffee. And the other ones, again, just like the coffee enemas, things that we don't normally like to talk about, you can do rectal or vaginal encephalation and also nasal encephalation or through your ears. 
And I've noticed with, especially with the different types of encephalation, not the water that I, in the beginning would have die off reactions and then feel better. So there were some weird things <laughs> die off wise that happened that I will not describe in graphic detail, but I definitely feel like it was working. So you had die off signs that were indicating it was working and then you would feel better shortly after. Yes. So you, you did mention that you have ozonated water in the morning with nootropics. Can you talk to us about what those are for our listeners? The ozone water or the nootropics? Nootropics. Okay. So the nootropics, that is part of the activation approach that I've had. I don't know if you wanted to go into that or. Yes, please. Okay. So the nootropics are not exactly the activators, but I started taking this natural NRF2 activator. So what it does is it turns on the NRF2 pathway in the body. And what that does is instead of direct supplementation, which is a one-to-one -one ratio, it's a million to one ratio because you're turning on the body's own factory and its own production of enzymes and antioxidants. So that's really sciencey. I could spend an hour going into the details. I will spare you that. If anyone has more questions, they can always contact me, but it helps upregulate the body's own production of glutathione by 300%, which in the Lyme community, many of us know what that is because we've paid a lot of money <laughs> to have glutathione pushes at the doctor in our IVs. So if you can upregulate your body's own produce, sorry, if you can help your body produce more on its own, that's where the magic happens. And it's also much less expensive. And it also reduces oxidative stress by 40% in 30 days. So that was what I started actually during medical leave before I went back to school and before I even got a diagnosis and it really with anything natural, of course, we can't claim to prevent, treat or mitigate disease. But what's important is that I feel like it made me so much more resilient and that I feel like I handled my treatments better. And I feel like I recovered better. And since then there have been more activators added, like how to help your mitochondrial health. And also a way of, instead of, cause I know a lot of people pay a lot of money too for NAD IVs. Um, I actually take an activator that helps the body produce more of its own NAD. And when I started that, I noticed that fatigue just didn't feel like it was going to be part of my life the way that it was prior to. So so Patricia, you're using a lot of words like nootropics and activators and things like that, that are going to help create more glutathione and help reduce oxidative stress and help you, I think, respond better to treatment and also, and also detox, it sounds like, but what specifically are you taking in the morning? Can you share with us what supplements, what, is it a pill? Is it a powder? What are you taking yeah. to help do these things? The one in the morning, the, the nootropic is a powder. It contains a little bit of NRF2 activation and then other things like L-theanine, Monterey pine bark, goodies like that. And then what's the, what's the name of that powder? Do you mind sharing that with us? Yeah. And uh, it is, I did decide to represent it like you and I discussed. So it is, if someone wants to know, they can always contact me, but it's called Axio. And, and I know so you're, are there others that you're taking as well? Yeah. So the NRF2 activator is a pill. It's an herbal 
synergistic ratio situation. And then the mitochondrial one and the NAD, those are all supplements pill form as well. And are these things you just buy online? Are they from Amazon? Are they from a distributor? Where do you get these things from? Do not get them on Amazon. <laughs> um, so here's the thing about Amazon and supplements they're not regulated. So, and this is important. And I'm not just saying this because in this case, like I, I'm a distributor and people can come to me. It's the best way to get them safely or someone else who's a distributor, but any supplement do not go to Amazon. Like I've had my doctor for other supplements say, Oh yeah, I have patients who, instead of buying them through our office, they'll buy them on Amazon. And then one day they couldn't get it on Amazon and then they came to our office to get it. And then they started to feel differently because they think they were buying who knows what, but whatever they were buying on Amazon wasn't what they thought they were taking. I mean, and that's scary on it. Not only are you wasting your money, but you could be taking something harmful that's just been put in a capsule. So just for safety, like, please never like get it through a trusted doctor's office or directly from the company that makes it. So Patricia, we, I know I've personally heard from family members and others in the community about this, you know, magic yellow, little yellow pill or this, this pro tandem product, I think, which is the NRF2 activator. So can you talk to us about that? It's, I know you kind of touched on that as well. Yeah. Sorry. I got off on the Amazon train and it, whether it's the little yellow pill or something else, just like, don't, <laughs> don't, don't. Um, okay. So I'm not sure how to answer your question. Um, it is the little yellow pill. I think it's awesome. It's so what exactly does the little yellow pill do? It's an, we know it's, it's, we've heard the word NRF2 and it helps, you know, activate NRF2 in our body, but what does that really mean? So how is it helping us? Okay. So gosh, this, how much time do we have? Uh, reducing oxidative stress is the main benefit. So if you look on PubMed, again, this is really nerdy and being this nerdy may not be what everyone wants to do, but if you look on pubmed.gov and search pro tandem, there, there are 20 something peer reviewed studies and counting on this branded product, which is really rare for a supplement. And one of the earliest ones, you can see it reduces oxidative stress by 40% in 30 days. And it's important because oxidative stress is correlated with a lot of conditions we don't want and it's associated with aging. So the main thing to me though, is that it reduces inflammation and knowing that it upregulates glutathione to me, that in and of itself was enough for me to say, Oh, that's great. Cause I knew how expensive it was to get a glutathione push at the doctor's office and how temporary that is. I mean, it can be really great. But if I can have my body produce it on its own and pay less money for it, I'm going to definitely sign up for that. So my final question, I think, before I hand you back over to Rich, is talk to us a little bit more about Dr. Nicola Ducharme, whom we love. And, um, you know, you mentioned that you don't want to play favorites. But we will because we don't know the other doctors. We think she's one of the best doctors out there for, for Lyme people. Uh, you mentioned that you did a lot of essential oil oil protocols, Dr. Ducharme. So did you use essential oils? Did you, we know you can diffuse, you can ingest and you can apply them topically. So in what way did you use essential oils in your healing journey with Dr. Ducharme? Mm, so we did food grade oils for ingestion. And again, you have to be really careful. A lot of these things that we've talked about today, I, it's, this advisory of don't try this at home without consulting a physician, <laughs> because 
the I oil? mean, we're, we're geeking out here, so it's it's a totally okay. We'll, we'll put that little blanket disclaimer of don't try any of this at home without the, the consulting your medical professional. But I think it's important, Patricia, to be able to have a good understanding of how these things work so you mm-hmm. can go educated to your, to your doctors and express why you want to try them to help you in your healing journey. And, mm-hmm. you know, doctors don't know everything. So if we can go educated and armed with the knowledge you're providing to people. We have a lot of options that we didn't have before that we can try with the assistance of a medical professional. So I don't want you to hold back because you're fearful okay. of that. Definitely consult a medical doctor before you do this. But if you can share with us as much as you can, that'd be super helpful. So thank you for that. Yeah. So when we, thank you. <laughs> so when I transitioned off of antibiotics, because we didn't want to completely annihilate everything positive that was in there, I started doing more herbs than I was previously taking. And out of the essential oils, I was doing tea tree, cinnamon bark, oregano, thyme, and I'm forgetting one, but there were a few, maybe peppermint. There were a few, and again, all food grade and the label slapped on as being safe for consumption. Cause you need to be careful. Not most oils have they could have pesticides or heavy metals mixed in, and that would make them very unsafe for consumption. And also just some oils, the main ingredient is not safe for consumption. So these ones were (laughs) under the guidance of a doctor and I pulsed them. So I put them in a capsule in a veggie cap and started really slow. It was one drop at a time. And I would do that for 10 days on and then 10 days off. And then the next 10 days on, I would add one more drop. And there was this whole scientific method to it. And I worked really hard from those. It was not fun. It was very not fun. And I I kept it up for a while, but I ended up transitioning off. I felt like it wasn't my favorite protocol I had done. And that's not a judgment. I know friends who have done almost solely essential oils because they couldn't or wouldn't do antibiotics. And I'm really glad it worked for them. It just wasn't, it didn't feel like the best one for my body specifically. So I, my final comment is we've had a, a past guest, John Tubbs, who primarily treated with essential oils and got himself pretty much into remission using, uh, getting creative using essential oils, food grade oils and ingesting them as well. But did you not like them because they were so aggressive and, and it sounds like you were herxing because they were killing things off in your body. So is that the reason you don't like them because they were so aggressive or is there another reason that you weren't so into essential oils in your healing journey? I didn't like how aggressive they were. So you picked that one up correctly. I was getting to where I felt pretty toxic and I was dropping things a lot again. And I, I, this is a little TMI, but I started dropping glass a few too many times in one week. And when you start dropping glass and it shatters, I went, all right, we've reached threshold. This is too much. I'm not going to do this anymore. It's, I wasn't. Yeah. I talked to my doctor. We decided that wasn't the course he would continue for me. So Patricia, let's take a look back at all of the healing modalities that you did um, and the order that you did them in. And first I want to ask you, were there some treatment modalities other than the one you just described that you would not have done if you were to do it again? It's a really hard question. And there's a part of me not to be too woo woo, but I feel like part of acceptance is that I wouldn't necessarily go back and change anything for me, not to say that's how everyone should be. But for me, I don't know that I would change a whole lot of the journey, 
But if I wanted to make it all happen faster, which if, if I was a new patient from day one, of course I would want it to be more efficient and to happen faster. I would start the nervous system retraining sooner. I would reject hustle culture sooner <laughs> and do some of the identity work sooner. And I would learn to listen to my body and to advocate for myself sooner because a big thing was I was good at advocating for others and I was not good at advocating for myself. And so learning that I mattered and that I was worth it to advocate for was a big deal and learning to stand up for myself and have boundaries. And I know that's maybe not the medical answer you were looking for, but all of those lessons really made a difference in my recovery. And as far as the medical piece, I would probably have introduced infrared sauna, not sauna, sauna. I would have started infrared sauna sooner. And I would have also shifted to more of a, I learned to be gentle with myself and to really focus on what feels good, what's enjoyable, what's coming up with my intuition, what, how can I make movement joyful? Cause before it was really about being fit and exercising a lot versus, Oh, how can I dance in a way that's not because I used to audition for things, but just dancing for fun alone in my room. And that has benefits for the mind and for my physical body. And so learning to do things like that, just for the fun and enjoyment of it and appreciating that that is part of my healing journey too. And even learning to be less harsh on myself as a big part of my healing journey, because that reduction of stress helps me recover. So talk to us about the game changers. What were the game changers for you on this journey? The biggest game changers would be working with professional help for all of the trauma and adverse life events I went through and starting Lyme killing protocols, period. Like working with a Lyme doctor, starting the herbs and antibiotics would not be where I am today without that. And nervous system retraining and the NRF2 activation and then the other activators that have come along the way. Those have all been the biggest. So talk to us about why it was important to deal with the foundational issues, specifically the trauma, so that you could heal from your line. I feel like you can't have one without the other. I feel like it's essential to compassionately and adequately address both. And this may not be a direct answer to your question, but I just can't imagine my life without having handled it. And it was interesting because at one point I wasn't even sure that I had an infectious disease. I felt like I had a disease. I felt like there was something that no one was diagnosing. I really did feel that. But after so many years of medical gaslighting, because it took me, if I was sick by high school, it would have taken me at least eight years to receive a diagnosis. If I was sick in elementary school, as Matt thinks I was, which is probably true, then it was even longer than that. Right. So that was a really long time to not have a diagnosis. So to go that long with all that gaslighting, 
I started to wonder if maybe it was all in my head. And I started to doubt myself because people were suggesting it was in my head. And I thought, well, maybe it's true. Maybe it is my trauma. That's making me sick. Maybe, maybe it is something more mental health related. And while that was untrue, I mean, it was both, right. It was that I had experienced trauma. And I think that the chronic stress going back to your earlier question about genetics and all of that, while it may not have been genetic, I think that chronic stress weakened my immune system and made me much more susceptible to become as sick as I did. Now talk to us about the resources that you've used generally and which resources you'd recommend that people who are earlier on the journey use, meaning what kinds of support groups, what uh, what types of uh, literature did you review, books did you read, what kind of websites did you locate to help you learn all that you've learned and share so brilliantly on this podcast? Thank you. So one is find a Lyme literate physician that you like and trust, one who has the proper credentials and that you can stand being around, preferably enjoy, because that's another big part of it as I dealt with a lot of physicians who were very uncompassionate and condescending. And that even if they know what they're doing, that makes it hard to heal because you don't feel psychologically safe around them. So you have the power to fire your doctor if your doctor is being a jerk. So find a doctor that you feel safe with. And again, who knows what they're doing and then find some kind of mental health support. Now, if you can work with a licensed mental health professional one-on-one, I think that's probably the best. If someone has access to that, someone who's literate in medical trauma, especially, or someone who knows health psychology, in my case, them knowing other parts of my background well was extremely helpful. Uh, but there are also groups and, you know, there, I haven't personally done it, but there's group therapy and, you know, something you want to do something, even if, if, if it's art therapy or if it's, you know, something along those lines, I actually didn't join any support groups, which is ironic because now I co-facilitate the San Diego Lyme Alliance empowerment circle. And I love it. I love the culture of that group. I love what we've created there. Christina is also part of it. And Amanda Dahl, who's one of your other past guests. So we really folk, we actually don't focus that much on the symptoms there. It's more so about what kind of tools and resources and community we build for ourselves. So it's more about building a support system for yourself, which is a little vague, but I personally don't like to talk too much and focus heavily on all of the bad things that have happened, because I think it can be a little bit re-traumatizing or re-triggering. So I try to focus on what's coming up now, what's working, how can I design more systems and more support and what do I need in this moment? So that was a little bit of a tangent, but you know, there's always that group people can come to and those, yeah, those are the main things beside all the game changers for myself personally that I mentioned earlier. I obviously recommend all of those as well. So now let's talk about Patricia 2.0. And uh, we really loved seeing that in your questionnaire, quite frankly, because it was the most unique way of somebody uh, describing a transformation. 
because Lyme disease isn't all bad, right? There is a beautiful element of going on this journey and you've described a lot of that beauty already. So talk to us about what you learned about yourself and your superpowers that you do not believe you may not have learned, certainly at this stage in your life, had you not gone through the suffering that Lyme disease has, um, has brought to you. It's so interesting to me how you picked up on the Patricia 2.0. It sounds a little funky when you hear it. I love that you love it so much. So the reason I conceptualized it that way is like we talked about, there's this shedding of almost everything where it feels like the rugs pulled out beneath you and it can, there's this grief of feeling like you've lost almost everything. And so, and that feels like a death in and of itself as heavy as that is it I actually felt and this was sort of how I thought well not sort of it was how I thought of it at the time I felt like I had symbolically died as I previously knew myself it was there was a sense of surrender of my life as I knew it is gone it will never be the same I can never retrieve it everything has forever changed and embracing not knowing what would happen next and having this hope and also extreme uncertainty of what the heck, however long I live after this, I have no idea what's going to happen and learning to let go of all of the things I was previously attached to, like my identity in advocacy and being able to help others and being a community organizer and being an artist, being able to sing, being able to dance, being able to write, being able to think, being able to exercise, being liked by other people. I felt like I had to let go of attachment to all of those things, as well as letting go of attachment to how others perceived me, what kind of finances or career did I envision for myself, all of these things. And so in learning to let go of those, it actually gave me this beautiful opportunity to reimagine my life and think about what's truly essential, what's truly important, what really matters to me, not what I thought mattered to me, not what society tells me should matter to me, but what really matters to me. And since I felt, even though I didn't lose everything, it felt like I lost everything. And I feel like because of that, it actually opened up this freedom to think about what life could be and to rebuild myself from the ground up and then intentionally redesign who I was going to be and how I wanted to be and how I wanted to treat others and really, really critically examine my values and accept that I may not ever have what I previously thought I wanted. And then what was so interesting is as I've healed, as I've recovered, as I've started to feel much better, where I actually don't have the chronic pain and fatigue that I used to, I feel pretty good, which is amazing. And I'm so grateful for that. And it's interesting because I see this continued building of capacity of I can do more and be more and feel good. And even what I didn't mention is I felt like I lost my personality for a while. Like my sense of humor took a little hiatus or medical leave of its own and so many things like being goofy and playful and things that I thought were core and essential that I could never lose. Like you think, Oh, well, you can take away my money. You can take away my accolades, but you can never take away who I am and my character. And I felt like even that was outside of my grasp for a while. And so it's been interesting. The 2.0 version 
is as I redesign and rebuild going forward in this completely altered chapter of my life is I'm seeing more and more of who I always thought I was before I became super sick is coming back. It's coming back to me. It's like, I had to let it go. And now all of the same things are returning. I actually work at Girl Scouts now and I am dancing and painting and writing and things are coming back, going back to your hero's journey, which I think is so cool. Some of the pieces that and we hear, we hear about this in storytelling all the time of the hero usually ends up with what they wanted in a slightly different way than the way the 1.0 version of the beginning of the story imagined it. They get what they wanted, but not the way they thought it would be. It's just slightly different. Well, is it is it what you wanted or is it what you had destined to become? Meaning... Did you, did you, did God give you a set of gifts and talents and, and purposes, which we sort of lose because our educational system puts some baggage on us and our culture puts some baggage on us and our family, even well-intentioned puts baggage on us. And then we go through this process of initially grieving a loss and we get through the cycle of grief and then accepting where we, where we are. And then we create something new. And I think what's really beautiful about your story, quite frankly, is it is a beautiful story of transformation. But what happened when you got to the end of this? You stripped off all the baggage and the superpowers became clear to you. And now you can use your superpowers in a way that you're supposed to use them. And the way you can really go back to saving the world as you had tried to before you understood your superpowers in a way that's not toxic to you. Yeah, it, it's learning to do things in a way that are healthier, more sustainable and not toxic and not relying on myself. Like I've had a lot of reframing of the saving the world language and I never want to see it as me saving anyone or anything because I really think that puts too much burden on one person. Okay, how about changing the world? We'll go, we'll go with that. And that wasn't to, to call you out. It's more so that I don't use that language for that reason. And I hope that's okay. You, but you can call me out. I'm, okay. I'm- <laughs> um, and so it's just so interesting because it feels like those, what you call superpowers, the things that felt, you know, we've talked you talk about the essential self and who were you when you were five? What did you like when you were five? What felt easy and natural? What came to you that didn't come so easily to others? that put you in a flow state. And it's literally all the same things coming back to me. It's like that song, it's all coming back, all coming. It's literally all coming back. <laughs> well, remember, yeah, I mean, you're talking about flow and I, I will define flow as, your, as, your, as your, your heart and your brain coming together, right? I mean, not working in your brain, but allowing your heart to lead you, right? And of course, when your brain, for example, was telling you you're stupid, right? You weren't in flow. You couldn't create, you couldn't do what you were created to do. You couldn't change the world. But as, they, as, as, you, as you were able to cleanse yourself of all this baggage, and as you were able to merge your gifts and talents, the superpowers are now putting you in a position where you can do what you're supposed to do. Thank you. And it's, it's the enjoyment that comes with it too, the freedom that 
it doesn't have to be perfect and to just allow it rather than being so attached and expectant of a certain outcome. It's a gift. Wow. This thing I've always loved is now re-entering my life. And I thought I'd lost it forever. And it helps me appreciate and savor it more because I think, wow, I never thought I would get to experience this kind of love again. And I don't just mean interpersonal, it's just so many types of love and gratitude And it's really beautiful and it's great because it just feels like unexpected blessing after unexpected blessing. And it's fun. It's been really great. And it's a great new chapter. So let us, let us share with you um, what caused us to want you on this podcast, because we actually witnessed the beauty of your transformation before we ever met you. We witnessed the beauty of the work that you can do before we even know who you are, because our friend Krista uh, Nanos had invited us, or Nanos, I'm, I know I just butchered her name, invited us to, uh, to uh, view a piece of art that you had created because she was invited to serve as one of the actresses, or actors. And, uh, and we enjoyed your work in so many different ways. And you, were, you gave so much beautiful insight into both the beauty and the challenges with being on a Lyme disease journey that we said, we've got to get this woman on this podcast because she's, she's just really capturing the essence of so much. One of the things that I still remember was the way, and I, and I don't remember who, which, of the, which of the characters talked about toxic Lyme groups and the challenges that sometimes these well-intentioned groups create for people and how this really unhealthy dynamic uh, um, develops. And you, you, you beautifully captured that in your writing and so many other things. That was the one that, you know, that really struck me because of something that I had been struggling with. So talk to us about how this transformation that you've gone through and this sort of stripping of all of these, um, of all of these challenges allowed you to now create something beautiful like that, what has caused you to now be considered one of the superheroes in this community. And it's even been profiled on, on sites like LymeDisease.org. Thank you. Wow. I'm really honored that you feel that way about the play. And it, it means a lot to me. It was quite the, quite the ride to write it. And so, as you know, I started out doing musical theater, being one of those kids that tap danced under the desk and all of, and harmonized with their friends in the hallway. And when the Broadway dream was realized that would definitely not be happening for me, I knew, so with symptoms, it's very difficult to be a performer. It's physically demanding to be a performer. So I, I had to shift and think, okay, I'm, this is one thing I'll be letting go. And because there was so much identity around it, that was hard. And I, I thought, okay, is there another way to creatively reimagine my engagement with this big part of my life? And so that's how I found playwriting And that's also how I found applied theater, which is a niche form of theater that is the advocacy application of playwriting and performing in place. So I thought, wow, I always had these disparate parts of my life. I wanted to advocate and be a leader. And then I also wanted to be a performer. And I was always told I could have one or the other. I couldn't have both. And I went, hey, if I merge them like this, I can have it all. And so that was how that happened. And I had some really great experiences trying that out in my early twenties. And then, and I actually hadn't really thought about writing a line piece and always worked very intuitively with what's coming up for me now, what layer of not just symptomology, but what layer of 
emotional healing is coming up in this moment. And I'm going to handle what's coming up for me in this moment and honor that. And so working through some of my experiences, my father's alcoholism that came up first. And once I had actually no one, very few people have read it, but there is a play related to that. And then there was this monologue I wrote in school that this is a very theater thing to do. There was a prompt. The professor said, write an anonymous monologue about the worst thing that's ever happened to you. So I wrote about being invisibly ill and misdiagnosed the same time my dad died and no one believing me. And the class voted it was the worst thing in the class that had ever happened to anyone. <laughs> and so it was, I like laugh really hard about it now. I'm not even laughed about it at the time, but it was performed at our final showcase at the end of the year. And my professor, my professor said, you know, you should let's for the performance part, let's take out the alcoholism. Well, we kind of took out most of the alcohol. I don't know. She was like, I feel like the Lyme thing and the alcoholism thing. I feel like those are separate plays. And I went, Oh gosh, I don't want to write another one. And so I shelved the idea said, I don't know. I'm not ready. I don't want to think about it. And so then a couple of years later, when I was starting this masters of social innovation, I went in knowing that I was going to, it was a very applied program. It wasn't all theory. There was going to be a capstone that could be an action project. And so I knew I was going to start something. It is geared somewhat toward founders. And I knew I wanted to start something to do with how do we conceptualize trauma healing or maybe Lyme disease advocacy. And so intuitively what came up was I said, okay, I guess it's time to tackle the Lyme disease advocacy. I'd never been that public. I had avoided all Lyme disease community related activities. I only went to my doctor and that was it. I didn't engage with, I wish I had found the super cool podcasts like yours and the Instagram community and all of these cool resources, but I did not know about any of them. And I was already several years into treatment. And I said, okay, well, it's most powerful when someone advocates for something they've personally experienced. And I had always advocated for something that I had never experienced. It was just, oh, I think I'd like to help this demographic. So I thought, okay, it's time that I step into something that I actually have lived experience of. It's going to be the most responsible and effective way to advocate. And that meant going public about my journey. And I had never been much of one to keep it a secret, but I also didn't plaster it. I don't think I had made a single social media post about it. And so most people, well, I don't know. There were people that didn't know in my life. And so I had, I was literally speaking on stages at school saying, by the way, this thing happened. And it was just, it was a huge change. And it, I remember even my classmates and professors going, oh, but you're better now. Right. And saying, no, actually, no, <laughs> I'm better than I was a year ago, but I'm still, still recovering. And anyway, all, all of that led to, I knew that I wanted to do a play because of, again, the applied theater interest. And I admittedly did not feel creatively inspired. Like sometimes as an artist, you'll go, I have this idea. I feel so inspired. And I felt like that for the play dedicated to my father. And then for this one, I really wasn't, I just knew that I wanted to do something. I didn't know exactly how. So I turned to documentary theater. I conducted a ton of interviews and the intention was to structure it similar to similarly to the vagina monologues by Eve Ensler. So for those that don't 
know beyond the taboo name that attracts quite a bit of notoriety. What she did is really interesting. She interviewed all of these folks and created monologues based on those interviews. And what's interesting is it's evolved into this niche subculture of people that annually in the month of February do performances. There are places that do it every single year and there's quite a community around it and they fundraise to support domestic violence nonprofits. So they support survivors of sexual assault and domestic violence. And they've raised billions of dollars by doing this around the world every year, which is really cool. And so there's this community piece, there's the arts piece, there's the fundraising piece. There are a lot of layers to that. And so I went, well, that's cool. I'll do my own version of that idea of gathering community, mobilizing community action, and also fundraising, and hopefully then addressing several of the needs of our community, because we do need all of those things. We need to not feel alone. We need to feel seen, heard, and understood. We need to express ourselves. And also we need policy advocacy and we need to be able to afford our treatment. So (laughs) there are quite a few things we need. And that's how it was created. And at first it was this amalgamation of many monologues and it was really hard. Verbatim theater is difficult because you do a one hour plus interview with this incredible person and you got, I'm sure you would relate to this much more deeply because of all of the interviews you conduct, you hear so much information and all of it feels so important and so powerful. And you think, wow, I am holding this person's story. And one of the hardest, if not the hardest thing they've ever gone through. And you want to witness that and do justice to that responsibly. And how on earth do you take a one hour interview and turn it into a one page monologue that will be as impactful as the interview? And I realized I was not very effective at doing that. I had all of these interviews, all of these monologues that were two to three pages and they weren't translate. The impact wasn't translating to the audience and there were too many of them. And I was really struggling because I was so attached to every person that I had interviewed and I got really stuck. And then a little, and there was this whole journey too around the creative process because in school, we're not really taught how to be a creative. We're taught how to do certain things, but not that. And so learning how to manage myself as an artist was a really big thing too. And I finally, so what you saw, the the iteration of the play you saw was with Krista as one of her actors, loved having her in it. That was the coolest. She was awesome. Yeah, she was awesome. She's awesome in general. And what really helped was there's this director, Diana Wayen, who is building her career at the intersection of public health and theater, because even within the advocacy-based theater world, there isn't a whole lot on public health and infectious disease. If you look at literature, you will find a robust body of work surrounding the HIV AIDS movement in the 1980s. And there's some really cool theatrical work there. And there isn't a whole lot available beyond that. So that was also part of my intention was building how do we do theater and public health advocacy. 
And I'll stop there because I've talked quite a bit. No, you and 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 you talked beautifully about it. So just uh, share with our listeners the name of the uh, uh, play, and uh, and let us know if it's available anywhere now. So if someone wanted to be able to see the version that you had presented, is that available, or is it only going to be available on a year-to-year basis? So the title is The Great Imitator. There were previous versions and previous titles, but that's the name we have now. And, and it's a brilliant title. Thank you. Thank you. I'm grateful for the title. And it is so the Zoom recording, of course, ideally, everyone will see it in person at some point. Uh, that's the impact of live in person theater. It feels very different. But we did what we did our best. We did what we could. And we did the Zoom version in May of 2021. And that recording is available now on my website. So folks can view it and on a donate what you can or feel called to basis contribute. And then that will help with fundraising for future productions because producing a play can be expensive. Hosting a live in-person event can be expensive. And so, um, by adding that recording and whatever folks feel called to will help us make that possible. Uh, the goal is to do a live in-person performance in Southern California in May of 2022. I'm still working out where the venue will be. It's still complicated with in-person gatherings and in-person theater. And there are also special logistics to consider about bringing the Lyme community into that. And that's still a work in progress. That's so. Please keep us posted on on how that develops, and let us know what we can do to help you to uh, develop that. Thank uh, you, project. Yeah, we we would love to help. So um, let me let me take you to the last question because you've been so generous with your time, and uh, much more generous than we could have even imagined before we started this podcast. Um, and I know our folks can tell we've we've really enjoyed doing this interview. Um, talk to us about uh, talk to us about what you would do. If God forbid your mom, who's been such a powerful force in your journey and such a, you know, a helping force in your journey, she came into your room right after this podcast and she had to, she had to take biting her. What would you recommend that she do so she can avoid the challenges that come along with going on a chronic Lyme disease journey? First and foremost, we would pull up a video on how to properly remove a tick. Because admittedly, I've never seen a tick in person that I know of in my life which is insane. But we would look at the video on how to remove it properly. We'd save it and bag it for testing and then figure out where to send in the tick for testing to find out what pathogens it might carry. And we would call our, and that's something that I want everyone to do. And unfortunately I get calls all the time of, oh my gosh, I was bit by a tick. I go, oh, do you still have it? They go, no. I'm like, oh, I wish you still had it. That's number one, keep the tick as gross as it is. And then if you have access, call a Lyme doctor about what you can do. And there might be an antimicrobial they can give you even within the first 24 hours that can really help. Uh, and, and I've also had people I know go to urgent care and say that they were bit and be given a short-term prescription for doxycycline. So not all doctors will give it to you, but that is something to ask for. So, I mean, I I just don't want the irony to pass before we uh, thank you for joining us. And that is that 
Um, your doctor, Dr. Sharma, uh, who was a brilliant interview as well, uh, shared with us a really interesting experience she had when she came to New York and came to Central Park and her child had a tick biting her on the back. Dr. Sharma, who is an author of four of the top leading line books uh, you can read and two of the two of the uh, you know the best courses you could purchase both if you're a practitioner or as uh, as as a patient uh, when she saw the tick on her child's back she pulled it off and threw it away and we we spent a lot of time talking about the the amygdala being triggered when uh, when or, or the, the your brain smoke detector being triggered when you see this experience uh, when you experience uh, a, um, a, a, you know, a tick bite. And it's really important to recognize that you need to calm yourself down before you do anything else. And, uh, and that's one of the things that Matt and I have actually outlined on our uh, website. So we would urge people to go to the tick bite blueprint on our website. One of the things we don't promote too much on our podcast, because it's, it's so cool that both you and your doctor have had a very interesting intersection on this point, uh, that, um, that before you can remove a tick, you have to prepare yourself emotionally and calm down your, your uh, fight or flight mode so that you can properly remove the tick. So, Patricia, I can't thank you enough for, for sharing so much of your time with us and this beautiful journey that you've shared with us. And, uh, and I can't wait for the, uh, for, for the community of Tick Bootcamp to learn more about you when they listen to this really beautiful podcast. So thank you, Patricia. Thank you so much, Rich and Matt. I really appreciate it. Oh, and one last thing about the tick bite. I always tell people to document the date of the bite in their medical records and take a picture of the site as well. And then that way, even if they don't show symptoms, if nothing seems to happen, it'll be in their records. So if years later, there are mysterious, weird things happening, they can remember to look back at that and test. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Patricia Kosselich. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Ms. Kosselich, please visit our Instagram page at patricia.kostelich, or Great Imitator Play. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of our post. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick Bite Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been provided to us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or any improvements you would like to offer to us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. Fifth, Ms. Kostelich and two collaborators have created a free Lyme disease resource guide. To download the guide, please visit her website at patriciacostelich.com. And finally, we thank our community for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you, as always, for listening.